This is Audible. McGraw-Hill Audio presents The Southwest Airlines Way Using the Power of Relationships to Achieve High Performance by Jody Hoffer-Gattel Read by Anna Fields Chapter 1 From Love Field to the World's Most Successful Airline Southwest Airlines has been profitable every year for 31 years an unsurpassed record in the highly turbulent, frequently unprofitable airline industry. During the same period, most of its competitors have struggled to achieve even three or four years of consecutive profitability. This record has not gone unnoticed by investors. For most of 2002, the total market value of Southwest, about $9 billion, was larger than that of all other major U.S. airlines combined. The business press has celebrated Southwest, and Fortune magazine has called it the most successful airline in history. Southwest has also achieved high levels of employee satisfaction. It has been included in Fortune magazine's list of the 100 best companies to work for in America three years in a row, and has consistently enjoyed lower turnover rates than other U.S. airlines. Because of its remarkable success and the innovative ways that its success has been achieved, Southwest Airlines has the potential to transform the airline industry in the same way that Toyota transformed the auto industry in the 1980s when its lean manufacturing practices swept through the industry. Southwest's business model, like that of Toyota, is to provide a low-cost product by utilizing its resources efficiently while providing record levels of reliable service. Southwest's marketplace success has been sufficiently dramatic and visible to inspire attempts by other airlines to adopt the Southwest model. Some efforts have occurred within the traditional hub-and-spoke model. Other efforts have taken the form of an airline within an airline, United Shuttle, Continental Light, U.S. Airways Metrojet, and Delta Express. Still others have taken the form of startups, Morris Air, Reno, Midway, ValueJet, and most recently, JetBlue Airways. Southwest's influence has also been felt beyond the United States, with startups such as WestJet in Canada, Ryanair in Ireland, EasyJet in England, and Debonair in Belgium. All of these airlines have borrowed elements of the Southwest model in hopes of achieving similar success. Just as managers around the world have learned about lean production and the Toyota production system through accounts of the auto industry's transformation, managers are eager to better understand the principles that underlie the remarkable success of Southwest Airlines. However, the Southwest model is still not well understood. Misconceptions are prevalent. Most people assume that Southwest Airlines has no unions or very few unionized employees relative to the rest of the industry. A top airline industry analyst recently told a group of students at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology that Southwest is not shackled by traditional unions. In fact, Southwest is one of the most highly unionized airlines in the U.S. airline industry, with employees who are represented by some of the most traditional unions in the United States. Similarly, people ascribe Southwest's success to its use of a single aircraft type and to its point-to-point -point route network, disregarding the numerous competitors, including Continental Light, U.S. Airways Metrojet, and the United Shuttle, that have not succeeded despite adopting these elements. 
Managers will not learn from Southwest's success until they have learned what the Southwest way actually is and how to adapt it to their companies and competitive settings. Like Toyota in the 1980s, Southwest has demonstrated its ability to outperform the rest of the industry and can no longer be ignored. If the essence of the Southwest model were well understood, others could learn from it, adapt these lessons to their situations, and transform their companies. One of the purposes of this book is to illuminate for managers what it takes to imitate Southwest's success. For the first two decades of its existence, Southwest was considered an idiosyncratic regional airline based out of Love Field, Texas. It was known for its flight attendants in hot pants and its wacky love culture. It was popular among price-conscious travelers in the southwestern region of the United States, but it appeared not to be very relevant for the rest of the country, much less the world. By 2002, however, Southwest was the fourth largest airline in the United States in terms of domestic passenger miles flown, serving 59 airports in 30 states. In terms of passengers flown per day, Southwest was the third largest airline in the United States and the largest in terms of the number of flights per day. In the wake of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, Southwest maintained a steady presence, refusing to lay off employees, while other carriers shed both employees and unprofitable routes. Backed up by a strong cash position and the lowest debt-to-equity ratio in the industry, Southwest instead used these difficult times to increase its presence and expand the availability of its low-cost model to the flying public. While other airlines laid off tens of thousands of employees, longtime Southwest employees saw the airline's no-layoff response as unremarkable and entirely consistent with Southwest tradition. According to one old-timer, that's part of our culture. We've always said we'll do whatever we can to take care of our people, so that's what we've tried to do. How did this remarkable transformation occur? How did Southwest grow from an idiosyncratic Texas airline to an organization that managers all over the world are seeking to emulate. Efficiency Southwest grew by offering low fares that were designed to compete with the automobile and bus rather than with other airlines. For managers, the interesting question is how Southwest achieves the low costs that make its low fares so profitable. Southwest's low costs are not based on low wages, more of its employees are unionized than at any other major U.S. airline, and they are paid around the industry average. Rather, Southwest is able to offer lower prices due in large part to the highly productive use of its major assets, its aircraft, and its people. Southwest is known for quick turnarounds of its aircraft at the gate to minimize the time its aircraft spend on the ground, non-revenue producing time for an airline's most costly asset. When a plane spends less time on the ground, it is able to earn more revenue per day. Given the high value of aircraft, the gains from reducing turnaround times by just five minutes per departure are substantial. As Southwest employees are quick to point out to each other, to customers and to visitors, our planes don't make any money sitting on the ground. We have to get them back into the air. Southwest also benefits from record levels of employee productivity. Adjusting for its unique product mix, focused on short-haul flights, 
Southwest has by far the most productive aircraft and employees of any major U.S. airline. Quality When Southwest hit the industry radar screen in the early 1990s, the company became known not only for its efficiency, but also for its record levels of reliability. Southwest is the only airline to have won the airline industry's triple crown, the fewest delays, the fewest complaints, and the fewest mishandled bags, not only for individual months, but for entire years, from 1992 through 1996. No other airline has won the triple crown for more than one month at a time. Southwest is also known for its record levels of safety. Unlike any other major U.S. airline, Southwest has never suffered a fatality and was consistently found by the Federal Aviation Administration to have the fewest pilot deviations per flight departure of all the major U.S. airlines. Controlled Growth Although Southwest's growth seems rapid and sudden, in fact, the company has grown at a nearly constant annual rate of 10 to 15 percent over the 32 years of its existence as part of a very deliberate philosophy of controlled growth. Southwest first hit the national radar screen during the 1990 to 1994 downturn in the industry in the wake of the Gulf War, while other airlines were pulling back and reducing their presence in many markets. Southwest continued its growth and made its first move beyond the southwest region of the United States. Southwest had already begun flying into California in the early 1980s, but in 1991 it began to offer flights in the intrastate California market. Southwest dramatically caught the attention of the aviation industry when it took over the San Jose, Los Angeles market in 1991 just as American Airlines was pulling out of its unprofitable San Jose hub. In 1993, the U.S. Department of Transportation labeled Southwest the dominant airline in the United States because of the effect it was beginning to have on the rest of the industry. They coined a new term, the Southwest effect, the change in fares and passenger volumes that is observed when Southwest enters a market. According to the report, when Southwest announces service on a new route, other airlines serving that route almost immediately reduce their fares and sometimes increase their frequencies as well. As a result, they reported, the net effect of Southwest's entrance into a new market had been to reduce fares by an average of 65% and to increase passenger traffic at least 30% in every new market it entered, with a 500% increase in one market. The same Department of Transportation report noted Southwest's dominance in the 100 largest U.S. city pair markets, leading many to conclude that the Southwest point-to-point -point route structure was only relevant to high-density markets. Low-density markets would still require the traditional hub-and-spoke system, in which passengers traveling from small markets could be consolidated together in hubs to create the economies of scale needed for efficient service. However, what these analysts failed to recognize was that Southwest's dominance in the 100 largest city pair markets was due in most cases to the fact that Southwest's low fares had created those high-density markets rather than that they were high-density to begin with. As Southwest's chairman, Herb Kelleher, explained to an industry analyst in 1995, 
When the Transportation Department issues a report discussing Southwest's dominance in the top 100 U.S. markets, most people conclude that we only go into markets that are very dense. What people don't realize is that Southwest Airlines made those markets dense with low fares and high-frequency service. They weren't that way when we went into them. After we established our Oakland-Burbank route, it soared to the 25th largest passenger market from the 179th in less than a year. Another example is our Chicago-Louisville route. Thirty days after we opened it, the market tripled in size. Theoretically, Kelleher concluded, there are no markets where the Southwest formula cannot be applied successfully. After expanding beyond Texas and into Arizona and California, Southwest began to achieve a national network by the end of 1994, with a solid presence in the Midwest, Chicago and Cleveland, and its first presence on the East Coast, Baltimore. At the same time, Southwest began to integrate the operations of Morris Air, a Southwest lookalike acquired in 1993 for its complementary route structure in the northwestern United States, and for the expected ease of its integration into Southwest, given the careful attention by its founders, June and Mitch Morris, to imitating Southwest practices. Integrating Morris Air's routes, aircraft, and employees temporarily sent Southwest above its target growth rate, but resulted in a network with a strong presence in the Northwest. Demand for Reliable Low-Fare Travel Southwest's growth was driven by growing demand for the product that Southwest delivered so well, reliable, low-cost travel. Consumer behavior shifted in the early 1990s toward greater price sensitivity, motivated by a downturn in the business cycle and made possible by increasing corporate control over business travel. The shift appeared to affect business travelers as well as leisure travelers, partly through corporate directives to cut down on travel costs. For example, the president of the West Coast Division of Circuit City said, My directive to all my people is to fly southwest whenever possible. We don't need the frills, just good service, a good fare, and to be there on time. Passenger willingness to pay rebounded after 1994, reflected in revenues that reached a peak of 13.5 cents per passenger mile in 2000. But from 2000 to 2001, revenue per passenger mile dropped by more than 10 percent. According to United Airlines' chief financial officer, none of us has ever seen this kind of collapse in business travel. Although the decline was precipitated by the faltering economy, Industry observers feared that the change in demand was more than cyclical this time. Anybody who has a modicum of Internet capability and wants to take what is now a modest amount of time can very rapidly find out and comparison shop, said Leo Mullen, CEO of Delta Airlines. There is almost perfect information out there. An airline analyst surmised that based on the low cost of information, Business travelers may be in the process of retraining themselves as to what they are willing to pay for business travel tickets. After the terrorist attacks of September 2001, the decline in passenger willingness to pay for air travel declined even further. From 2000 to 2002, the average cost of a 1,000-mile coach fare fell 14.7%. I believe what we're up against in the airline industry is much more than a cyclical problem, said Donald Carty, CEO of American Airlines. 
We need to take a long, hard look at literally everything we do to see if they still make sense in the new reality. While other airlines were wondering what to do, Southwest Airlines was well-positioned to benefit from the increasingly price-savvy customer that it had helped to create. Competitive Threats Spurred by this change in air travel demand, airlines have woken up to Southwest's steady growth and unusually successful business model. As the industry came out of its previous downturn in 1994, other airlines for the first time saw a real viable threat that they could no longer ignore, and they responded by trying to imitate Southwest. Continental responded to the Southwest threat with Continental Light. United responded with the United Shuttle, and U.S. Airways responded with Project High Ground, the predecessor to Metrojet. Before it became clear that these early Southwest imitators would not succeed on a large scale, fair competition from them immediately began to take a toll on Southwest's profitability, which dropped 48% in the fourth quarter of 1994. The United Shuttle forced fair wars in several of Southwest's West Coast markets, while Continental Light and U.S. Airways forced fair wars on the East Coast, particularly on Baltimore, Cleveland, and Chicago routes. In the meantime, the costs associated with the 1994 integration of Morris Air into Southwest's employment and route system were large, taking a toll on Southwest's profitability. Lower profits and the fear that other airlines would successfully imitate Southwest's business model fueled a 54% decline in Southwest's stock price from February to December of 1994. These new forces generated considerable anguish throughout Southwest. There is really so much competition out there that people are really pulling together, said a customer service supervisor in Chicago. The shuttle is all that's on our minds right now, said the Los Angeles station manager. We just watched a feature on television about us and the shuttle. They say the United system is far too rigid to provide good customer service, but our stock started at 30 this year, and now it's down to 17. In his 1995 message to the field, Herb Kelleher addressed the threat posed by competitors such as Continental Light and the United Shuttle. Continental had just given up the light concept, recognizing defeat. Still, Herb told employees all airlines were now competing on costs in response to the challenge posed by Southwest. Southwest had shown a lot of discipline with its costs, even during good times, he emphasized. This was what enabled Southwest to continue making money during the 1990-1994 downturn in the industry. In fact, he pointed out, Southwest had reduced its costs even further between the fourth quarter of 1993 and 1994, from 7.11 to 6.94 cents per average seat mile. Given the billions of seat miles flown by Southwest, this cost difference added up to millions of dollars in profits, he said. Without this improvement in costs, Southwest profits in the fourth quarter of 1994 would have fallen 84% rather than 48%. As Kelleher explained to Southwest employees, We want to reduce all of our costs except our wages and benefits and our profit sharing. This is Southwest's way of competing, unlike others who lower their wages and benefits. The fear, in particular, was that a hub-and-spoke carrier like United would achieve lower fares on short-haul flights 
by successfully imitating the Southwest strategy, then have the additional advantage of a second hub-and-spoke product with longer-haul flights and a more extensive route network. Southwest was excluded from two major computerized reservation systems in 1994, Continental's System 1 and United's Apollo, further fueling Southwest's fears that its competitors were trying to put it out of business. Ultimately, Southwest held its own in California against competitive threats from United's shuttle. Southwest turned its attention to increasing its presence in the Midwest and on the East Coast, where U.S. Airways Metrojet and Delta Express were posing similar competitive threats. Though Southwest considered these threats to be substantial, it ultimately outlasted both competitors. However, the competition is expected to intensify rather than subside as others seek to learn from Southwest's success. Southwest currently faces a competitive threat from JetBlue Airways, the best-funded startup in U.S. aviation history, which was founded in early 1999 by former Southwest Airlines executives with an initial capitalization of $130 million. JetBlue's early operational success was similar to that of Southwest's, and less than three years after its founding, its market capitalization exceeded that of American Airlines. Success Factors Leadership, Culture, Strategy, and coordination. What are the forces underlying Southwest's remarkable performance and its self-transformation from an idiosyncratic regional carrier to a dominant national force? More important, what are the strategies and practices that managers in any industry can take away from Southwest to improve the performance of their own organizations? This book argues that Southwest's most distinctive organizational competency is its ability to build and sustain relationships characterized by shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. Although Southwest's relational competence seems simple and self-evident, this book shows that building it required a set of organizational practices that are neither simple nor self-evident. Though distinctive in many ways, Southwest is most distinctive in its intense focus on the quality of its relationships and in its willingness to forego quick solutions to invest long-term in the maintenance of relationships among managers, employees, and business partners. This book is not the first attempt to offer an analysis of Southwest's unusual performance. Several explanations have already been given for Southwest's success. One, its status as a largely non-union carrier in a highly unionized industry. Two, the extraordinary leadership of Herb Kelleher, three, the unique culture of Southwest, four, its quick turnaround at the gate strategy, and five, high levels of coordination. The first explanation is surprisingly common, but it is simply based on error. In fact, as noted earlier, Southwest has the highest percentage of unionized employees of any airline in the United States, and it prides itself on outstanding relationships with its unions including traditional unions such as the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the International Association of Machinists, and the Transport Workers Union. The other four factors, leadership, culture, strategy, and coordination, offer important insights into Southwest's success, but each one is powered by Southwest's distinctive relationship-building ability. Leadership 
Many believe that Southwest has succeeded because of the remarkable leadership of Herb Kelleher. The press has extolled the quirky qualities of Herb, and there is no point in underestimating the importance that this man has played in the success of Southwest Airlines. Perhaps most remarkable of all, Herb has remained in a leadership role at Southwest Airlines from the time of its founding until the present. As Executive Vice President Jim Wimberly noted in 2000, a year before Kelleher handed over the CEO and President positions to colleagues Jim Parker and Colleen Barrett, there is no other air carrier that has had the same continuity of leadership as Southwest. It has shaped this culture and we are blessed with it. Herb's leadership has been critical at Southwest, most popular accounts agree, because he has helped to shape a truly unique culture for this organization, unlike that of any other major U.S. airline. In particular, Herb has created a focus on relationships, relationships based on shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. Not only has he helped to develop the organizational practices that strengthen relationships, his personal actions have also exemplified to employees the importance of relationships. As one pilot explained, I can call Herb today. You don't just call and say there's a problem. He'll say, think about it and tell me the solution that you think will work. He has an open-door policy. I can call him almost 24 hours a day. If it's an emergency, he will call back in 15 minutes. He is one of the inspirations for this company. He is the guiding light. He listens to everybody. He's unbelievable when it comes to personal etiquette. If you've got a problem, he cares. However, leadership is not confined to the CEO. Leadership is better understood as a process that can take place at any level of an organization. Indeed, leadership is needed in today's organizations to motivate, support, and enable employees to work together in support of a set of shared goals. This book will describe the leadership style at Southwest, both as carried out at the top by Herb Kelleher, his top management team and his successors, and as it is exercised at the level of frontline supervisors. Culture Another common explanation given for Southwest's success is its unique culture. Indeed, Southwest has a very different culture from that of other major U.S. airlines, as we know from the popular reports and as other management theorists have shown. What is so unique about Southwest's culture? Southwest's culture has evolved over time from a culture that was idiosyncratic to a particular time and place, hot pants and love in the southwestern region of the United States in the 1970s with come-to-Jesus meetings, to a culture that is highly inclusive and diverse. However, what has remained constant over time, and what lies at the root of Southwest's culture, is the focus on relationships. This book goes beyond the observation that culture is important to identify what is so powerful about Southwest's particular culture. A related question is, how that culture is built and sustained after the initial spontaneous culture of a small company is no longer sufficient. As Colleen Barrett pointed out, we had a company culture here before I knew what it meant. The main goal is to maintain it, but it's difficult. Senior officers don't even touch the workforce. In this book, we will take a hard look at the role of relationships in Southwest's culture and at the organizational practices that Southwest has developed to build and sustain those relationships. Strategy Alternatively, 
Perhaps Southwest has succeeded because its quick turnaround strategy is fundamentally different from that of other major U.S. airlines. Having a point-to-point -point network, rather than a hub-and-spoke network, quick turnarounds are arguably more relevant to Southwest than to its competitors. Other airlines have hubs that give them pricing power. According to American Airlines' senior vice president of planning, a hub generates up to 20% more revenue per plane than a comparable point-to-point -point flight. Southwest, on the other hand, as a point-to-point -point carrier, has neither hubs nor pricing power. Southwest has instead used a quick turnaround strategy, and the high aircraft utilization inherent in this strategy, to offer low-cost air travel to consumers. The quick turnaround strategy requires a simple product and a configuration of assets, aircraft, routes, and maintenance facilities, that is very different from that of a hub-and-spoke operation. This argument contains some important insights. Southwest's focus on short-haul routes has made quick turnarounds even more critical for its operational success, given the inherent productivity disadvantages of short-haul flying. However, this story about strategy, like those about leadership and culture, is made possible by Southwest's strong relationships. Relationships among frontline employee workgroups are critical for coordinating the flight departure process for any airline, but especially for one that has at the centerpiece of its strategy the goal of turning the planes in record times, while doing it safely and accurately. Other airlines have tried Southwest's quick turnaround strategy, the United Shuttle, Continental Light, Delta Express, and U.S. Airways Metrojet, with nowhere near the same success. To implement this kind of strategy, a strategy based on leanness, speed, and reliability, requires highly effective working relationships among all parties involved. It is not just a matter of having a single aircraft type or a point-to-point -point route structure. Any organization that wants to compete on the basis of leanness, speed, and reliability can benefit from Southwest's relationship focus. As we learned from Toyota in the transformation of automobile manufacturing, the principles of lean manufacturing require an intense focus on teamwork among functions that traditionally have not spoken to one another. As we learned from Walmart in the transformation of retailing, integrating the supply chain from customer through manufacturer requires relationships among parties all along this chain, many of whom traditionally have had few shared goals and little shared knowledge. Coordination Finally, perhaps Southwest's outstanding performance has been achieved through high levels of coordination among its frontline employee groups. Well-coordinated organizations have a competitive advantage through their ability to achieve higher quality at lower cost by achieving faster cycle times and by providing a more coherent interface to customers. Such organizations can change the nature of competition in an industry by pushing out the efficiency-quality frontier, rather than simply making efficiency-quality trade-offs along an existing boundary. In the U.S. auto industry, major gains have already been achieved from improved coordination of the production process, with additional gains being achieved through the integration of production and design. These changes have been motivated in large part by product-market competition from early Japanese innovators, such as Toyota. 
Scholars have found evidence that coordination also contributes substantially to performance in the telecommunications, mainframe computer, and apparel industries. Coordination plays an important role in the airline industry because one of the core processes in the provision of air travel, the flight departure process, requires a high degree of coordination under time constraints for its successful completion. However, there is a tradition in the airline industry of strong functional boundaries and status differences across employee groups involved in the departure process, making coordination difficult to achieve. Coordination appears to be a source of competitive advantage for Southwest Airlines, helping it to deliver inexpensive on-time service with a speedy turnaround that lowers costs. However, coordination in its traditional sense does not fully capture what has made Southwest so successful. Instead, the coordination observed at Southwest is powered by relationships among employees, relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect, described as relational coordination. We will see that relational coordination goes beyond the more familiar concept of teamwork. Relational coordination describes not only how people act, but also how they see themselves in relationship to one another. Behind these success factors, high-performance relationships. Although leadership, culture, strategy, and coordination are critical success factors, they are only part of the story. Southwest's relationship focus, its commitment and passion for shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect, joins with frequent, timely, problem-solving communication to form a powerful force called relational coordination. Part one of this book documents how relational coordination can drive high performance. How does Southwest craft the process that results in shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect among frontline employees, managers, and external partners? Part two describes the specific organizational practices that turn good intentions into results. These ten practices are neither simple nor self-evident. They require substantial investment and organizational commitment. Part 2 shows how these practices live and breathe at Southwest and how they can drive results for any organization that is willing to invest in its relationships. The best practices and lessons learned at Southwest are transferable not only to the airline industry but to any industry. Part 3 uncovers the challenges of implementing these 10 practices in your organization. Like notes in a symphony, these practices must synchronize and harmonize with each other. Surprisingly, if only one of these practices is out of tune, it can seriously undermine your organization's investment in the others. Relationship focus, as a way of doing business, not only can drive growth and profitability, it can sustain them through crises and through ups and downs in the business cycle. Part 3 will arm you with guidelines to build and sustain the relationships that can help your organization adapt successfully to the turbulence of today's challenging business world. Chapter 2 How Southwest Uses High-Performance Relationships to Overcome Strategic Challenges Southwest Airlines was founded to serve a unique market within the airline industry. Herb Kelleher and Roland King, Southwest's founders, wanted to provide frequent, low-cost service in busy markets of less than 500 miles. 
They considered the automobile and bus service their major competition. Southwest's flights were typically non-stop from originating airport to destination, although connections were available for customers who wanted them. The Productivity Disadvantages of Short-Haul Flying Because Southwest Airlines is well known for focusing on short-haul flights and is now the leading low-cost airline in the United States, the general public tends to think that short-haul flights are cheaper to operate than longer routes. However, the opposite is true. Short-haul flights are inherently costlier than long-haul flights per mile flown, making Southwest's tremendous profitability record even more impressive. Short-haul flying is more expensive because planes spend more time on the ground relative to time spent in the air, reducing aircraft productivity. Also, time spent on the ground is inherently more labor-intensive than time spent in the air, reducing labor productivity. On the ground, a wide array of ground-based crews is involved in servicing the aircraft and processing the passengers. For those listeners familiar with manufacturing, the reasoning is similar to the logic of setup costs. Small batches are inherently costlier than large batches on a per-unit basis because the setup costs for a small batch are equal to the setup costs for a large batch, but for a small batch those setup costs are spread over a smaller number of units. Similarly, short-haul flights are costlier than long-haul flights on a per-mile basis because many of the setup costs, loading passengers, bags, and cargo, fueling, maintenance, cleaning, are incurred whether the flight is short or long, but for a short-haul flight, those setup costs are spread over a smaller number of miles flown. Considering all of the major U.S. airlines except Southwest, flight length is negatively related to costs per seat mile. The shorter the flight, the higher the costs. Similarly, flight length is positively related to aircraft and labor productivity. The shorter the flight, the lower the productivity. However, because of Southwest's innovative attempts to reduce the costs of short-haul flying, flight length is now positively related to costs per seat mile. The shorter the flight, the lower the costs. Likewise, flight length is now negatively related to aircraft and labor productivity. The shorter the flight, the higher the productivity. Southwest's innovations have changed the underlying logic of production in the airline industry. In short, many of Southwest's innovations were motivated by the ambitious, counterintuitive strategy of offering short-haul service at low cost. To offset the productivity disadvantages inherent in short-haul flying, Southwest focused first and foremost on achieving quick turnarounds. Quick turnarounds mean turning aircraft around as fast as possible at the gate to minimize the time that aircraft spend on the ground, because ground time is non-revenue-producing time for an airline's most costly asset. In interviews conducted for this book, Southwest's frontline employees demonstrated that they are acutely aware that our planes don't make any money sitting on the ground. We have to get them back into the air. The quick turnaround is akin to reducing setup costs. If Southwest were going to offer short-haul flights economically, without relying on low wages or propeller aircraft, as many of the regional airlines do, they would have to reduce setup costs. A major element of setup costs is simply the time required. In automobile production, for example, Toyota moved the industry towards smaller batches to reduce expensive inventory and respond more quickly to changes in customer demand. 
To succeed at its strategy of providing high-quality, low-cost automobiles, however, Toyota had to figure out how to reduce setup costs, and in particular, how to increase the speed of changeovers from one batch to the next. Toyota spawned many innovations in the production process in the effort to meet the challenge of producing smaller batches economically, and speedy equipment changeovers were critical to the overall process. Southwest's quick turnarounds were the airline industry parallel to Toyota's speedy equipment changeovers. Both innovations made smaller-scale production runs more economically feasible than they had ever been before. Unless creative measures were taken to counteract the disadvantage, the short-haul strategy chosen by Southwest Airlines would have resulted in lower aircraft and labor productivity and higher costs per seat mile flown. In addition, Southwest lacks the hub-and-spoke system that has long been considered the most profitable way to run an airline. When airlines were suddenly exposed to new competitive pressures after deregulation, they built hub-and-spoke systems to better compete. The competitive advantage of hubs derives from economies of scale. According to experts from the MIT International Center for Air Transportation, the simplest manifestation of these economies of scale appear in areas such as maintenance, where staff and inventory costs can be reduced by having one central maintenance facility. A subtler and more important reason for hub-and-spoke arrangements, however, has to do with economies of scale applied to frequency and passenger preferences. Market share in the airline industry is largely a function of flight frequency. A hub-and-spoke network topology has a consolidating effect that makes it possible to justify more flights to each city. Market share, in turn, allows greater pricing power, as we know from basic economics principles. To illustrate this pricing power, a hub generates up to 20% more revenue per plane for American than a comparable point-to-point -point flight, according to American's Senior Vice President of Planning. However, there are also disadvantages of hub-and-spoke systems. The advantage of hub-and-spoke networks is that they concentrate traffic. The disadvantage of hub-and-spoke networks is that they concentrate traffic. When airports begin to run out of capacity, as is occurring in the U.S. airline industry today, the disadvantages of consolidating flights in a hub begin to outweigh the advantages. The temptation under the current conditions is to advocate point-to-point -point networks as a solution for the woes of the airline industry, but point-to-point -point networks have disadvantages as well. Maintenance and other resources are more widely distributed, creating greater coordination challenges. Perhaps most important, point-to-point -point networks do not generate the same pricing power as hubs. To make up for this lack of pricing power, airlines that depend largely on point-to-point -point route networks have to be extremely cost-effective. There are many ways to be cost-effective, including cheap labor and cheap equipment but Southwest chose to meet these strategic challenges through quick turnarounds of its aircraft at the gate. Achieving Quick Turnarounds Southwest discovered multiple ways to speed the turnaround of its aircraft at the gate. First, Southwest used only one aircraft type, the Boeing 737. Although there were differences between the early 737 Series 200 and the later Series 700, Southwest standardized cockpit configurations as much as possible to minimize extra training requirements for its pilots. Thus, crews, furnishings, and spare parts were interchangeable, and maintenance was more uniform. Second, where available, 
Southwest used less congested airports to avoid disrupting flight operations and to maximize aircraft time in the air, as opposed to time spent taxiing or being held at the gate due to air traffic control issues. In large cities, Southwest often used older facilities, such as Dallas's Love Field or Chicago's Midway Airport, that had been abandoned when new larger airports were constructed. Southwest often offered service to smaller airports with easy access to large metropolitan areas, for example, New York City through Long Island Islip Airport. Third, to speed turnarounds, Southwest offered limited services, specifically no in-flight meals, only beverages and snacks, and did not transfer baggage to other airlines. These practices reduced costs and turnaround time. Finally, Southwest offered open seating. This practice helped create efficiencies in several ways. First, there was no need for software to sort and hold seating assignments, nor the time and expense of printing boarding passes and then verifying them as passengers boarded the aircraft. Perhaps more important, the open seating system rewarded passengers for showing up early to the gate. The early passengers had their choice of the best seats. Coordination through high-performance relationships. These strategies for simplifying Southwest's product were important but not sufficient for achieving its goal of quick turnarounds. Quick turnarounds at the gate were impossible without a high level of coordination among 12 distinct functions. Pilots, flight attendants, gate agents, ticketing agents, operations agents, ramp agents, baggage transfer agents, cargo agents, mechanics, fuelers, aircraft cleaners, and caterers. In the airline industry, these functions are divided by differences in expertise, status, and even the distinct locations in which they work. Pilots spend their time in the cockpit, flight attendants in the cabin, baggage handlers, caterers, fuelers, and mechanics on the ramp, and gate and ticket agents in the gate and ticketing areas. They do not have a history of warm cooperation in the industry as a whole. Over time, Southwest Airlines has developed 10 organizational practices to facilitate coordination among these diverse functions by building relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. The rest of this book explains these 10 practices and how managers in any setting can implement them to improve their business performance. Each of these practices is designed to build relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect within Southwest and with its external partners. The practices together have produced high levels of relational coordination, enabling Southwest to turn planes quickly, achieving industry-leading levels of aircraft and employee productivity. Other Possible Responses to the Same Challenges of course, a different organization facing the same strategic challenges faced by Southwest might have responded to those challenges in an entirely different way. Like Southwest, U.S. Airways does primarily short-haul flying. Rather than looking for ways to speed gate turnarounds, U.S. Airways has relied on pricing power at its hubs to command high fares to cover the high costs of short-haul flying. However, with the incursion of Southwest into its East Coast markets, this pricing power has been challenged, leading U.S. Airways to look for other solutions. Regional airlines also do primarily short-haul flying, but there are three interesting differences between their approach and that of Southwest. First, 
They strive to reduce the inherent productivity disadvantage of short-haul flying by paying employees below the industry standard. Second, they tend to use propeller aircraft rather than jets for the same reason. And third, they act as feeders to the long-haul routes of other airlines rather than developing their own point-to-point -point route structures. Southwest could have overcome the productivity disadvantages of short-haul flying in these other ways without having to rely so heavily on cross-functional coordination of the flight departure process and the relationships that make it possible. Why did Southwest choose to focus on relationships to solve the strategic challenge of offering low-cost short-haul flights? The explanation seems to lie in the values and backgrounds of Southwest's founders. Herb Kelleher and Colleen Barrett, who has recently risen to the position of President and Chief Operating Officer, both played a critical role in the founding of Southwest and in the development of its organizational practices. Both share the values of egalitarianism and caring. Likewise, they have had the advantage, in some respects, of coming from outside the airline industry. The disadvantage was their need to learn from scratch what other airline executives took for granted. The advantage, however, was the same the need to learn from scratch for themselves what other airline executives took for granted. One thing they absolutely did not take for granted, given their values, were the status distinctions that are so pervasive in the airline industry and throughout the world of work. Summing up. This chapter explains what motivated Southwest to develop the ten principles of relationship-based performance. The primary motivation was the need to overcome the inherent productivity disadvantages of short-haul flying in order to compete in a cost-effective way with the car and the bus. However, this does not mean that the principles of relationship-based performance are relevant only for airlines with this particular strategy. Even though the principles of relationship-based performance were critical for Southwest's success, those principles are also relevant for airlines with different strategies and for organizations in different industries. The key point is that strong working relationships allow organizations to achieve reliable performance in a highly efficient way. Organizations with strong relationships can move beyond traditional trade-offs between efficiency and quality, shifting out the efficiency-quality frontier to achieve higher levels of both. Relationships are not just nice to have, but rather if invested in consistently over the long term, can be powerful drivers of organizational performance. Chapter 3 Southwest versus American Airlines The Power of Relational Coordination Southwest has the fastest gate turnarounds in the airline industry to minimize the time its aircraft spend on the ground. When a plane spends less time on the ground, it is able to earn more revenue per day. Given the value of aircraft, the gains from reducing gate times by just five minutes per departure are substantial. This chapter defines relational coordination and shows that relational coordination accounts for much of Southwest's industry-leading turnaround times. The sections immediately following are based on observations and interviews conducted at Southwest and American Airlines and reveal startling contrasts between the two airlines. Although relationships are relatively soft organizational factors and therefore tempting to neglect under challenging conditions, relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect 
contribute substantially to effective coordination and therefore to quality and efficiency performance. Communication The flight departure process is one of the core processes of an airline's operations. Repeated hundreds of times daily in dozens of locations, the success or failure of this process can make or break an airline's reputation for reliability. In the flight departure process, representatives of 12 distinct functions who often do not communicate well with each other perform a complex set of tasks between the arrival of the plane and its next departure. The flight departure process is further complicated by rapid changes in weather, connections, and gate availability such that information is often inaccurate, unavailable, or obsolete. Robert Baker, Executive Vice President of Operations for American Airlines, called the flight departure process one of the least predictable work processes that an airline performs on a repeated basis. In the flight departure process, coordination occurs largely through communication among pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, gate agents, ticketing agents, ramp agents, baggage transfer agents, aircraft cleaners, caterers, fuelers, freight agents, and operations agents. However, the communication observed among these functions at Southwest and American Airlines was very different. Frequency and Timeliness of Communication American employees interviewed for this book expressed frustration with both the absence and lateness of the communication they needed from their colleagues to make decisions and carry out their tasks. Reports of inadequate communication were common. According to a customer service supervisor at American, here you don't communicate, and sometimes you end up not knowing things. Everyone says we need effective communication, but it's a low priority in action. On the gates, I can't tell you the number of times you get the wrong information from ops. They tend to be optimistic. We call it the creeping delay. The hardest thing at the gates with off-schedule operations is to get information. They are leery to say the magnitude of the problem. Similarly, an American gate agent reported, We have to rely on the maintenance group. If there's a delay, a problem with the operation, we have to be in touch with them. Through operations usually, but sometimes directly. It doesn't go especially well. Unfortunately, those departments that don't deal directly with the public don't feel that sense of urgency. We get the brunt of it when other departments fail to load a bag, clean the cabin, tell us when there's going to be a mechanical delay. Timely communication is very, very important. While employees at American complained about the failure of their counterparts in other functions to communicate with sufficient frequency and timeliness, Southwest employees expressed pride in the frequency and timeliness of their communication. A customer service supervisor reported, When there are irregular operations, bags have to be moved. There is constant communication between customer service and the ramp. Customer service will advise the ramp directly or through operations. A Southwest station manager described the normal pattern of communication regarding mechanical difficulties. The pilot reports a maintenance issue when he calls in range to operations. The mechanic is usually here to meet the plane. If something is seriously wrong, we move to an off-terminal location and cancel the flight. If it's just two hours, we do an aircraft swap. Ops keeps everyone informed. It happens smoothly. A Southwest gate agent praised the quality of communication. 
The ops agent is responsible for every bit of information going into the computer. We can tell the customer everything they need to know because it's right there. Communication is ultimately the key. Communication is one of the primary ways that people coordinate their work with others in a wide variety of settings. Organizational experts have long recognized the power of frequent communication for coordinating work processes and have now begun to focus on the critical importance of timely communication. With frequent timely communication, Southwest employees could respond quickly to changing circumstances in a coordinated fashion. Without it, American employees could not. Problem Solving versus Blaming The communication observed at these two airlines also differed in the degree to which it focused on problem solving rather than blaming. At American Airlines, employees involved in the flight departure process displayed a great deal of blaming and blame avoidance toward each other for late departures and other negative outcomes. There was a tendency to hide information to avoid blame for a delay, thus detracting from the information sharing that was central to coordination. A Southwest station manager explained his philosophy. If there's a delay, we find out why it happened. Say there was a 10-minute delay because freight was excessive. If I'm screaming, I won't know why it was late. The freight handlers will think, he's an idiot, if only he knew. Then they'll start leaving stuff behind, or they'll just shove it in, and I won't know. If we ask, hey, what happened? Then the next day the problem is taken care of. You have to be in that mode every day. There's no one person who can do it. We all succeed together and all fail together. You have to truly live it. I think we do here. Problem-solving communication, in turn, enables employees to adapt quickly and work together when things go wrong. It is a critical ingredient in coordinating flight departures. As we saw, however, when something went wrong at American, the primary focus of communication was blaming and the avoidance of blame. In contrast, when something went wrong at Southwest, the primary focus of communication was problem-solving. Other work settings also require problem-solving communication. Saul Rubenstein found that problem-solving communication among workers at the Saturn Auto Plant was a key aspect of coordinating work and achieving quality outcomes. However, it is not easy to achieve. W. Edwards Deming, the father of Total Quality Management, TQM, argued that the resort to fault-finding rather than problem-solving is a common flaw in organizations and one that undermines both performance and the potential to improve performance over time. Relationships Behind these differences in communication, there seemed to be a deeper phenomenon at work. In particular, relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect observed among Southwest employees were much stronger than those observed among American employees. Shared Goals at American, shared goals appeared to be weak. According to a customer service agent, if I sit back here for two hours in the break room, I feel like nobody cares. On the ramp, similar complaints were heard. According to a ramp manager, 90% of the ramp employees don't care what happens, even if the walls fall down as long as they get their check. As just noted, American employees did care a lot about one thing in particular and that was avoiding blame for failing to accomplish their tasks. A pilot pointed out that American gate agents were scared to death to take a delay. 
However, this fear generated a sense of competing goals rather than shared goals. Once another party was tagged as responsible for having caused a problem, others were effectively off the hook. Shared goals for performance appeared to be weak to non-existent at American. By contrast, shared goals at Southwest appeared to be strong. According to a Southwest customer service supervisor, the main thing is that everybody cares. We work in so many different areas, but it doesn't matter. It's true from the top to the last one hired. Sometimes my friends ask me, why do you like to work at Southwest? I feel like a dork, but it's because everybody cares. At Southwest, managers, supervisors, and frontline employees in each functional area said that their primary goals were safety, on-time performance, and satisfying the customer. These goals seemed to be shared in the sense that employees from each functional area referred to the same goals and could explain why they were important. When discussing the need for on-time performance, nearly everybody explained that our aircraft are valuable and they don't earn any money sitting on the ground. A Southwest ramp supervisor explained to me, if we can't keep you, the customer, coming back, we are not going to stay in business. A Southwest flight attendant supervisor explained, here it's one goal, 100% customer service, whatever it takes. You can see it just walking through the terminal. Rampers will even help board a flight. There's a desire to be part of the team. According to a Southwest pilot, from someone who drives the bus, as it were, if you don't mind my language, people work their asses off. I've never seen so many people work so hard to do one thing. You see people checking their watches to get the on-time departure. People work real hard. Then it's over, and you're back on time. Even outsiders recognize the shared goals of Southwest's employees. A contract fueler for Southwest explained, This airline is very different. Here, if there's something to do, people want to do it right away. At U.S. Airways, it was, We still have 15 minutes. From a Southwest pilot's perspective, When you come into the gate and see everybody there ready to go to work, it makes you feel great. In their classic book on organizations, James March and Herbert Simon describe the potentially disintegrative effects when employees in an organization pursue their own functional goals without reference to the overarching goals of the larger work process. Shared goals play an especially important role when different functions are involved in delivering the same service. The comparison between Southwest and American shows that when employees have the same goals, regardless of their functional identity, they can respond in a coordinated way as new information becomes available. Shared Knowledge There were also notable differences between American and Southwest in the degree of shared knowledge observed among employees. Interviews with frontline employees at American revealed that they had little awareness of the overall work process and instead had a tendency to understand their own piece of the process to the exclusion of the rest. When asked what they were doing and why, American employees typically explained their own tasks without reference to the overall process of flight departures. For example, ramp agents explained to me that when the bell rings, it is time to go out to meet the plane. By contrast, interviews with Southwest frontline employees revealed that they understood the overall work process and the links between their own jobs and the jobs performed by their counterparts in other functions. When asked to explain what they were doing and why, the answers were typically couched in reference to the overall process. 
These descriptions by Southwest employees typically took the form, the pilot has to do A, B, and C before he can take off, so I need to get this to him right away. Rather than just knowing what to do, Southwest employees knew why, based on shared knowledge of how the overall process worked. One pilot explained Southwest's strength with regard to shared knowledge. Everyone knows exactly what to do. Each part has a great relationship with the rest. There are no great secrets. Every part is just as important as the rest, the labs included. Everyone knows what everyone else is doing. Other work settings also benefit from shared knowledge and suffer when it is absent. Members of product development teams representing different functional areas often inhabit different thought worlds due to differences in their training, socialization, and expertise. These thought worlds get in the way of effective communication and slow down the product development process. Shared knowledge of the work process by those who are participants in it can link these different thought worlds and therefore enhance coordination. Mutual respect. Finally, interviews revealed dramatic differences in the degree of respect shown by employees toward their colleagues in other functional areas. Status boundaries between employees in different functions pose a significant obstacle to coordination in the airline industry. Among station employees, there is a tradition of name-calling, such as agent trash and ramp rats. As one gate agent explained, they call them ramp rats for a reason, they're pigs. There is a hierarchy on the ramp that starts with the highly paid mechanics and ends with cabin cleaners. Some of these barriers are due to the very different work performed by each function and to the geographic distance between these functions, even though their work is highly interdependent. The pilots are at the top of the status hierarchy. As one pilot explained, Pilots are great at being self-righteous. It's something about the job. The major airlines treat you well. People do what you say. It brings out a certain decisiveness that becomes arrogance. At American, status boundaries clearly pose an obstacle to coordination. The relationships between the pilots and other functions are particularly problematic. According to a station manager, ramp workers have a tremendous inferiority complex. They think everyone is looking down on them. The pilots don't respect them. This status barrier between the two functions has clear consequences for delays. Status consciousness permeates the industry and therefore also has the potential to undermine working relationships at Southwest. At Southwest, however, employees tend to treat each other with a great deal of respect. A Southwest manager of ramp and operations explained, There's a code, a way you respond to every individual who works for Southwest. The easiest way to get in trouble here is to offend another employee. We need people to respond favorably. It promotes good working relationships. John Van Manen and Steve Barley's work suggests that members of distinct occupational communities are often divided by differences in status, and that these communities may bolster their own status by actively cultivating disrespect for the work performed by others. When members of these distinct occupational communities are engaged in a common work process, the potential for these divisive relationships to undermine coordination is apparent. Respect for the competence of other employees is fundamental to the coordination of work processes, whether the work involves flight departures, research and development, or jazz improvisation. Coordinating Through Relationships 
All of the above evidence suggests that effective coordination requires frequent, timely, problem-solving communication carried out through relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. This is precisely what relational coordination means. In environments where relational coordination is weak, performance is also weak, as data in the next section will show. With strong relationships, employees embrace rather than reject their connections with one another, enabling them to coordinate more effectively with each other. Shared goals motivate employees to move beyond what is best for their own narrow area of responsibility and act with regard for the overall work process. Shared knowledge among employees regarding how their tasks are related to other tasks enables them to act with regard for the overall work process. Respect for the work of others encourages employees to value the contributions of others and to consider the impact of their actions on others, further reinforcing the inclination to act with regard for the overall work process. Employees who feel disrespected by members of another function avoid communication and even eye contact with members of that function. Without relationships of shared knowledge, employees are less able to engage in timely communication when circumstances change suddenly, not knowing with sufficient precision who needs to know what and with what urgency. Without shared goals, the easiest response to problems is to blame others for having caused the problem rather than to engage in problem-solving with them. Why Relational Coordination Works – The Power of Collective Identity We have seen that there are three important elements of working relationships for achieving effective coordination – shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. These relationships have powerful effects because they shape our personal identities. Through relationships, other people influence the development of our identities, just as we influence the development of theirs. Relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect help us to form a collective identity with others, enabling us to engage more easily in coordinated collective action. In contrast, organizations that lack shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect tend to have weak collective identities. Individual workers do not identify with the organization strongly and tend not to consider what is best for the organization. Instead, they focus on what is best for accomplishing their own narrow task. Postmodernists and feminist philosophers have argued that the relational basis of human identity has been overlooked in our individualistic society and that, in fact, our identities are socially constructed. Indeed, as Joyce Fletcher has argued, the way people work together cannot be fully understood without this relational perspective. Organizational social capital embedded in interpersonal relationships is therefore likely to be critical for organizational performance. However, the division of labor poses a tremendous challenge. The division of labor is a powerful source of efficiency and productivity, as Adam Smith showed over 200 years ago but it results in alienation and fragmentation of human identity. Strong working relationships can serve to overcome the alienation created by the division of labor by creating more holistic social identities in place of the more partial and fragmented identities that lead people to reject their connections with others. In sum, 
Relationships shape our own personal identities. They define who we are. It is no wonder, then, that relationships among people who work together, particularly their shared goals, shared knowledge, and respect for one another, or lack thereof, are such powerful drivers of organizational performance. This chapter has one critical implication for managers. Although relationships are relatively soft organizational factors, and therefore tempting to neglect under challenging conditions, relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect contribute substantially to effective coordination and to the quality and efficiency of organizational performance. In Part 2 of this book, we will learn how Southwest Airlines creates these high levels of relational coordination through ten distinctive organizational practices and how these practices can be implemented in any organization. Part 2. Ten Southwest Practices for Building High-Performance Relationships Chapter 4. Lead with Credibility and Caring Southwest is so often congratulated on its outstanding leadership that this chapter hardly seemed necessary. Though the importance of leadership should not be overestimated relative to other organizational practices, neither should it be underestimated. But what is leadership? Leadership expert Ralph Stogdill once quipped that there are almost as many definitions of leadership as there are persons who have attempted to define the concept. These definitions range from the mundane, the behavior of an individual directing the activities of an organized group toward goal achievement, to the esoteric, articulating visions, embodying values, and creating the environment within which things can be accomplished. In this chapter, we will attempt to understand better the effectiveness of Southwest's leadership. We will see that credibility and caring are two critical ingredients of leadership effectiveness at Southwest, and will conclude by describing the leadership transition at Southwest when Herb Kelleher stepped down and the ongoing role that is played by Southwest's top management team. Leadership at Southwest Airlines CEO Herb Kelleher and his top management team have excelled at gaining the trust of managers in the field and frontline employees. They have built trust over time by being upfront and consistent in their message. Southwest's top managers have also made themselves available to frontline employees, demonstrating a level of caring that is beyond the norm in large companies. This accessibility was mentioned time and again as a building block of the relationship between frontline employees and top management at Southwest. A pilot explained, Herb is a true charismatic leader. He's not your average CEO. He really cares to let people know he cares. When he talks to you, he is really focused on what you are saying. No one can pry him loose. I've seen this. He sets the example of respect for everyone. All are important. Treat each other with the same respect as our customers, so people are happy. Colleen Barrett, President and Chief Operating Officer of Southwest, is also mentioned time and again as an important leadership figure at Southwest. Herb and Colleen set an example through their own actions to the rest of the company regarding the importance of relationships. To demonstrate caring, the top leadership of Southwest Airlines is held to a no-layoff policy throughout its 31-year history. 
Kelleher's belief in treating people with respect has infused relationships throughout Southwest Airlines. He explains how he came to have this belief. My mother taught me that. She was an extraordinary person. When I was very young, 11 or 12, she used to sit up talking to me till 3, 4 in the morning. She talked a lot about how you should treat people with respect. She said that positions and titles signify absolutely nothing. They're just adornments. They don't represent the substance of anybody. I was kind of her disciple. I learned firsthand that what she was telling me was correct, because there was a very dignified gentleman in our neighborhood, the president of a savings and loan, who used to stroll along in a very regal way, up until he was indicted and convicted of embezzlement. She taught me that every person and every job is worth just as much as any other person and any other job. Southwest's Leadership Transition The importance of the relationship between top management and frontline employees to Southwest's success should not be underestimated. It is one reason why many observers wondered whether there would be a Southwest without Kelleher. Kelleher had said for years that he would step down as CEO when he reached the age of 70. Given the central role he plays at Southwest Airlines, this prospect generated a great deal of anxiety on the part of Wall Street analysts and other industry observers. Some Southwest employees themselves wondered how Southwest would fare after Herb's departure, given his visibility in the company. One operations agent who had been with Southwest for 20 years said, We used to say when Herb retires, we're leaving. He's been the force behind Southwest's success. When he leaves, it will all go down the tubes. We used to say that six years ago. No one says that anymore. You wouldn't know that he left. It's not any different. Others closer to the top leaders themselves, however, including one of Southwest's chief pilots, expressed confidence as early as 1994 that Southwest would continue to thrive without Herb. Herb is so important to what Southwest is, but it will continue without him. He has done a very good job of selecting people. He has a good group around him. He picks sharp individuals to fill various roles, then entrusts them to make decisions. There will never be another Herb Kelleher, but the spirit will carry on. Indeed, Herb confirms that he selected his successors with great care. I thought about who would be my successor very seriously for quite some time. My biggest concern was that I wanted someone who would be respectful of Southwest's culture and would be the sort of person who was altruistic in nature. I think Jim Parker and Colleen Barrett fit that. Kelleher chose longtime colleague Jim Parker to succeed him as CEO and longtime colleague Colleen Barrett to succeed him as President and Chief Operating Officer. In selecting Barrett, Kelleher also left Southwest with the legacy of having the first top woman executive in the U.S. airline industry. About breaking this barrier, Barrett says with characteristic humility, It's not anything I ever aspired to. All I ever really wanted to do all my life was enjoy what I do, and I obviously do that. But since all the coverage on this transition has come out, I have been amazed at how many women I have heard from that I don't know. So obviously it's a bigger thing than I would have thought. First of all, the airline industry really isn't known for its women. That is a fact. But the glass ceiling has never been an issue for me at Southwest Airlines, so I've never particularly thought of that. But I have heard really big-dog people saying how great this is. It makes me feel great for women. It's kind of humbling. 
and I wish my mother was alive because she'd love it. Southwest's Top Management Team The other key factor for the successful transition was the existence of a very cohesive, well-functioning top management team, giving Kelleher multiple strong leaders from whom to select and giving Southwest's new leaders a cohesive, well-functioning team with which to lead. It was evident at a March 2001 top management team meeting that Southwest's leadership extended well beyond Kelleher. It appeared to be a group that would not allow itself to be torn apart by jealousies related to succession. Kelleher had not yet stepped down or announced his successors, but he was absent from the meeting preparing his annual message to the field. There was ample opportunity to observe the team on its own, without the charismatic leader who has garnered such enthusiastic attention in the press and in the investment community. There was clearly a well-functioning, remarkably well-integrated top management team in place at Southwest Airlines. The meeting reflected Southwest's approach to decision-making. Managers from different business areas spoke knowledgeably about issues beyond the expertise suggested by their titles, and they repeatedly built upon one another's thoughts. It was like stepping into an ongoing conversation in which these managers had been engaged for many years. As Colleen Barrett pointed out at the start of the meeting, titles mean very little here. Most people overlap in functionality. You would not get an accurate impression of Southwest from interviewing us individually about our areas of functional expertise. Not only does Southwest invest a great deal of time and energy in building relationships between top management and frontline employees and among frontline employees, in addition, members of Southwest's top management team also invest their own valuable time in building relationships with one another. This ongoing conversation among senior managers at Southwest is one important way that this organization achieves shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect across functional divisions. Scholars have explored decision-making processes among members of top management teams. The value of real-time communication is clear. However, long meetings can be an enormous expenditure of valuable time. How can Southwest, with its focus on efficiency, justify such an expenditure of time? There are two reasons why Southwest's lengthy top management team meetings may be worthwhile. First, the time invested in developing shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect among senior managers may actually save time in the long run by resolving early on the functional disputes that can slow down implementation and blunt the effectiveness of policies, even after they are implemented. Second, the coordination achieved at the top of the company translates into coordination on the front line, where customer service is delivered. Coordination on the front line in turn helps Southwest deliver reliable service while achieving efficient utilization of both its aircraft and its people. Summing up, Herb Kelleher has often been described as a charismatic leader. According to leadership expert Robert House, a charismatic leader has the ability to relate the mission of the organization to deeply rooted values, ideals, and aspirations shared among followers, thus giving the work of the organization more meaning than it would otherwise have. Kelleher has certainly provided Southwest Airlines employees with a sense of mission that connects to their own values, ideals, and aspirations. That sense of mission, if strong, will remain with the organization as a legacy. 
Not every leader of a successful organization must be charismatic. What successful organizations do need from each of their leaders, however, is credibility, the ability to inspire trust, and caring, the ability to inspire a belief by employees that their leaders care deeply about their well-being. Chapter 5. Invest in Frontline Leadership Ironically, although Southwest Airlines is known as a flat, team-based company, it has more supervisors per frontline employee than any other airline in the industry. This directly contradicts many contemporary management thinkers, who have argued that the purpose of supervisors is to perpetuate bureaucracy by controlling and monitoring workers who might otherwise act irresponsibly. Many organizations believe that teamwork and coordination are needed among frontline employees, and that supervisors tend to get in the way. Flat organizations with few supervisors should therefore perform better than more bureaucratic organizations. Despite this, data on the U.S. workforce shows that managers and supervisors have increased rather than decreased as a proportion of the workforce consistently since the 1950s, and have continued to do so in the 1980s and 1990s, despite the downsizing and delayering reported in the business press. These trends hardly suggest that supervision is becoming irrelevant. This chapter will show why supervision continues to be relevant despite predictions to the contrary. As we will see at Southwest Airlines, leadership is not only relevant at the top of the organization. Leadership is better understood as a process that can take place at any level of the organization. Indeed, leadership at the front line can play a critical role in organizational success. Rather than undermining coordination among frontline employees, supervisors play a valuable role in strengthening coordination through day-to-day -day coaching and counseling. At Southwest, each supervisor is responsible for 10 to 12 frontline workers, the highest supervisor-to-employee ratio in the industry. The job of the supervisor goes far beyond a focus on measuring performance and disciplining the bad apples. Southwest supervisors are player coaches, having managerial authority but also performing the work of frontline workers. Supervisors take part in frontline work on a regular basis, even highly physical work, such as baggage handling. A Southwest supervisor explained, A supervisor fills in spots when people are on breaks or when we are short on a zone. We make sure all the gates are staffed and that everything is running smoothly, working in a timely manner. When agents see the supervisor working consistently, they give more in a crunch. Also, you get their respect by working with them. Working side-by-side -side with frontline employees is conducive to building shared goals with them and to developing the credibility and knowledge needed for effective coaching. Southwest supervisors also spend more time than their counterparts in other airlines engaged in coaching frontline employees. Coaching takes the form of problem-solving and advising. The Chicago station manager explained, If there's a delay, supervisors find out why it happened. We get ideas on how to do it better next time. If you've got that kind of relationship, then they're not going to be afraid. Say there was a 10-minute delay because freight was excessive. If we're screaming, we won't know why it was late. In sum, supervision at Southwest was hands-on and intended to be informative and supportive in nature. It was not arm's-length supervision. 
interactions were intense, and performance measures were not used as a substitute for these interactions. Benefits of High Supervisory Staffing Levels The supervisory role at Southwest Airlines, with its emphasis on coaching, counseling, and working side-by-side -side with frontline employees, required high levels of supervisory staffing. Relative to other airlines, United, Continental, and American, Southwest had very high levels of supervisory staffing. In a study that included two American Airlines sites, two Continental Airlines sites, two Southwest Airlines sites, and three United Airlines sites, a statistical analysis suggested that high levels of supervisory staffing contribute to higher levels of relational coordination. Supervisory staffing levels also contribute to improved flight departure performance, particularly faster turnaround times, greater staffing productivity, fewer customer complaints, and fewer lost bags. The Southwest Difference Interaction between supervisors and frontline employees ranged from infrequent and arm's length in American Airlines to frequent and intensive in Southwest. These differences were consistent with levels of supervisory staffing. Higher levels of supervisory staffing at Southwest gave supervisors fewer direct reports, enabling them to engage in more frequent and intensive interaction with their direct reports, while supervisors at American, United, and Continental, with more direct reports, engaged in less frequent and more arm's-length interaction with their direct reports. With fewer direct reports, Southwest supervisors also had greater opportunities for working side-by-side -side with the frontline employees they were responsible for supervising. Working together appeared to reduce informational and social distance between supervisors and the supervised, and to support the creation of shared goals. Shared goals, in turn, made frontline employees more receptive to supervisory coaching and feedback, and reduced the role of supervisory monitoring even further as employees began to monitor each other. With fewer social and informational boundaries between themselves and their direct reports, supervisors were also able to perform their coaching and feedback functions more effectively. In sites with low levels of supervisory staffing, a different story emerged. Supervision had been reduced to economize on staffing and ironically to increase participation by frontline employees. Supervisors had arm's-length relationships with their direct reports and played a largely bureaucratic role, relying on impersonal rules to allocate responsibility for late departures and other errors. Their role was primarily to monitor compliance with performance targets set by headquarters and with basic rules of behavior, such as being on duty at the scheduled times. The Case for Reduced Supervisory Staffing some organizational scholars acknowledge that supervisors can play an important role in supporting coordination and teamwork, but they claim that this supportive role requires less supervisory involvement, not more. According to team theorists Richard Hackman and Gregory Oldham, when a group is first formed, it may be necessary to help members get off to a good start by inviting them to participate in some team-building activities intended to establish the boundaries and identity of the group and to assist members in coming to grips with their shared authority for managing internal group processes. Then, as the group gains a sense of its identity 
and begins to develop its own ways of dealing with task and organizational issues, the manager or consultant can gradually withdraw from prominence in group activities. The gradual reduction of supervisory involvement is argued to be a win-win proposition for frontline employees and for the organization. Employees can have more autonomy, and the organization can achieve better performance once supervisors have handed off their responsibilities to frontline employees. Consistent with this view, an empirical study in the 1980s found that the elimination of supervisory positions was associated with improved productivity in a manufacturing setting. An analysis of multiple studies conducted in the 1980s concluded that work teams without supervisors performed better than work teams with supervisors. The case for increased supervisory staffing. But because effective leadership is both time-consuming and relationship-intensive, more time, rather than less, may be required to perform the job effectively. According to Douglas McGregor, founder of the Human Relations Approach to Management, roles cannot be clarified Mutual agreement concerning the responsibilities of a subordinate's job cannot be reached in a few minutes, nor can appropriate targets be established without a good deal of discussion. It is far quicker to hand a subordinate a position description and to inform him of his objectives for the coming period. Higher supervisory staffing levels increase the time a supervisor can spend with each employee, increasing the opportunities for working side by side, building shared goals, and providing coaching and feedback. Summing up. Higher levels of supervisory staffing lead to improved performance in many settings other than the airline industry. In new product development, groups in which frontline supervisors play a significant role have been found to perform better than groups with greater autonomy from supervisors. Even in manufacturing, Higher supervisory staffing levels permit more intimate and informal relationships to develop between supervisors and frontline workers, setting the context within which shared goals can be developed. With insufficient staffing, supervisors are forced to focus on the bad apples and to play an arm's-length oversight role. With higher staffing levels, as we saw at Southwest Airlines, supervisors can work side-by-side -side with frontline employees, gaining their respect and becoming sufficiently familiar with the work so that they can provide meaningful coaching and feedback to their direct reports. They can be more available for conversations with their direct reports, thereby reducing the barriers between themselves and frontline employees and creating a richer flow of information between frontline employees and those at higher levels of the organization. In addition, Supervisors with sufficient staffing levels can facilitate the development of strong relationships among frontline employees. Top managers at Southwest have repeatedly touted the important role that supervisors play in their organization. According to Libby Sartain, former vice president of People, we're only as strong as our supervisors. That's where most organizations break down. Now we are putting even more time and effort into internal recruitment and training for frontline supervisors. Executive Vice President of Customers Donna Conover concluded, 
While other airlines are cutting supervisors, we have a large number of supervisors to encourage, guide, and give structure to people. It lends to the family atmosphere here. Chapter 6 Hire and Train for Relational Competence Because different jobs require different abilities, one of the most important objectives of the hiring process is to find people who best fit the requirements of the job. The critical skills to be identified in the hiring process go beyond the technical and cognitive realm to include personality traits. Service management experts Leonard Schlesinger and James Heskett have made the case that service companies in particular should hire for soft skills, such as customer orientation and teamwork ability. In a survey of employees conducted by Peter Capelli, teamwork ability is the single trait that employees most frequently identify as being necessary to accomplish their work successfully. Teamwork ability can be understood more specifically as relational competence, the ability to relate effectively with others. Relational competence is a critical ingredient of organizational success, though it tends to be undervalued in the world of work, particularly when hiring people for jobs that require high levels of expertise. Organizations tend to underestimate the importance of relational competence. Yet even people who perform highly skilled jobs, for example, engineers, doctors, pilots, need relational competence to integrate their work effectively with the work of their fellow employees. When relational competence is overlooked, the result is the hiring of excellent individual performers who cannot contribute fully to the organization's goals and who often undermine those goals. This chapter shows how Southwest Airlines builds high-performance relationships by hiring and training for relational competence. Hiring and Training at Southwest Airlines Southwest places a great deal of importance on the hiring process to identify people with relational competence. Southwest's assessment of how a job candidate will affect the overall operation of the airline goes beyond the typical search for appropriate skills and experience. According to the former head of Southwest's People Department, Ann Rhodes, one of the important unwritten rules at Southwest is that you can't be an elitist. According to a Southwest ramp manager, one thing we cannot teach is attitudes toward peers or other groups. There's a code, a way you respond to every individual who works for Southwest. The easiest way to get in trouble at Southwest is to offend another employee. We need people to respond favorably. It promotes good working relationships. You find an individual with an upbeat and positive attitude, and you'll find that everything that needs to be done will get done. It's very contagious. Unlike other airlines where supervisors hire frontline airport employees with little support from management, at Southwest, employees are selected with the participation of station management and the people department, using a time-consuming process to identify the desired characteristics. According to a ramp manager, something we look at is people who are very team-oriented from prior work experiences. We say, Take an incident from your prior work and walk us through it. Do they limit themselves to the job or go above and beyond? We don't just look at work history. We've turned away people with 15, 16 years of airline experience in favor of people with none. The concept of teamwork is tough, 
You really don't know if a person will be able to cross over from his or her primary responsibility and do other things. We get a feel for people who will go above and beyond. According to Libby Sartain, former vice president of People, we spend more money to recruit and train than any of the other airlines do. We take the time to find the right people to hire at all levels within our organization, and we spend time training them. We really believe in the notion of one bad apple. It's like a religion here. As a result, our turnover is far less than it is at other airlines. Even when hiring pilots, Southwest explicitly seeks people who lack an attitude of superiority and who seem likely to treat co-workers with respect, in addition to being highly skilled in their profession. A story circulated around industry pilot circles that a pilot came to interview at Southwest and treated an administrative assistant with disrespect and didn't get the job as a result. Even for mechanics, who are typically hired strictly for their technical skills, and who are known at other airlines for being insular and not interacting well with non-mechanics, Southwest's hiring goals were the same, to find team players who would relate well with the other functional groups. A Southwest personnel manager explained, We're looking for experience, but also for someone who is going to be able to work with other groups in a good environment. Training New Hires in addition to the hiring, an important related task is training and acculturating the newly hired people, most of whom have come from other, more functionally divided companies. Southwest watches newcomers carefully at the outset to identify and correct potential hiring mistakes. Colleen Barrett said, We bring someone in and it is fascinating to watch. We say, We don't make decisions based on what is good for me or my department. It is collective. It's not treated as a single decision. We do what's best for Southwest as a whole. If new hires do not catch on to the Southwest way of taking a holistic, collective perspective on work, they stand out as misfits and are fired or counseled out. Barrett explained, We've got to be pretty darn religious watching that person's performance during the probationary period. That sounds strange for a family-oriented company, but... If we see a misfit with teamwork or an attitude, we will counsel once or twice and we will be harsh. Often people who do not fit at Southwest realize it early on, sometimes even during the early stages of training, and they opt to leave. Barrett is sympathetic in these cases. They stick out like sore thumbs, they really do, and they feel it even before others notice it. Training at Southwest is geared toward building functional expertise as well as relational competence. Each newly hired employee receives both classroom training, from one to two weeks depending on the job, and on-the-job training, from two to three weeks depending on the job. A training coordinator is assigned to each newly hired employee to guide his or her on-the-job training. This on-the-job training takes the form of explaining to the newly hired employee both what to do and why. For example, a training coordinator explained to a new trainee, and then we write down the number of bags that we've put in each bin and hang it on the clip so the operations agent can do the final weight and balance check and determine how much fuel this plane is going to need. As a result, in the course of being trained for a specific job, the employee learns about the jobs of each other functional group that interfaces with the job for which he or she is training. 
The training is therefore geared toward fostering relational competence. By learning about the overall work process, employees understand where they fit and how their job relates to and supports that of their colleagues. Later in their tenure at Southwest, employees learn more about each other's jobs through job exchanges. Through programs called A Day in the Field or Walk a Mile, Southwest employees periodically spend a day working in another department to become familiar with other aspects of the work process related to their own jobs or jobs they aspire to move into. A customer service agent in Phoenix explained, If we want, we have an opportunity to spend a day in operations to see how they do it, or with a ramp agent. We do it to gain more knowledge. It's an optional thing. Still, everybody knows what's involved because you have to interact with them. If a bag is mistagged, we will call down to the ramp supervisor. Classroom training doesn't cover it, but we get it on the job. Promotion from within Most positions at Southwest are filled through internal promotion and through lateral moves across departmental lines, creating a great deal of internal job mobility and therefore opportunities for learning about other parts of the operation. In effect, Southwest employees learn about each other's jobs through initial on-the-job training led by a training coordinator, through on-the-job experience, through the training that occurs during a day in the field, and through cross-departmental job mobility. The end result of these hiring and training activities is high levels of relational competence in Southwest's workforce. Stresses and Strains of Rapid Growth at one of Southwest's rapidly growing stations in Los Angeles in the early 1990s, hiring and training for relational competence began to break down. Southern California was one of the first locations to which Southwest moved outside Texas. In Los Angeles in the early 1990s, the People Department had difficulty finding enough people who met Southwest's hiring criteria, resulting in high levels of turnover. This turnover snowballed due to the failure to hire quickly enough. The more seasoned Southwest employees who had transferred to the Los Angeles station experienced heavy workloads and burnout from the need to constantly train new employees and began to seek transfers to other more established Southwest locations. Part of the problem was a culture clash between employees coming from Texas, the company's home base, and employees who originated in Southern California. An operations supervisor explained, People in California are totally different from Texans. People here feel they have to know you to talk to you. A customer service agent reported a similar experience. I'm from Texas, and coming here was a real rude awakening. I said, Hi. People would say, Hi, do I know you? A lot of people here are prideful, not warm and friendly. Southwest's top management team addressed these problems by infusing the Los Angeles station with a high level of resources to break the cycle of failure. The People Department set up shop right in the station itself, next door to the station manager, and interviewed new applicants intensively to overcome the staffing deficit while maintaining Southwest's hiring standards for relational competence and team spirit. Managers who were known and respected for their work in other successful Southwest stations, including the manager of Ramp and Operations from Phoenix, came to Los Angeles for several months to give their input into the hiring process and to help support the training of new hires. These efforts at turning around the Los Angeles station through intensive focus on hiring and training were ultimately successful. 
Southwest faced a similar challenge in the late 1990s with the Baltimore station, another place where outsiders believed it would not be possible to find the Southwest type of person. Just as in Los Angeles in the early 1990s, Southwest's top leadership responded with additional resources for hiring and training, establishing a local branch of Southwest's People Department, bringing in highly successful managers from other stations, and overseeing the development of a local culture committee. Southwest managers have heard the argument that the Southwest type can only be found in Texas or in the southwestern region of the United States, but they claim it is misguided. Colleen Barrett notes, The naysayers said we could never fly to the Northeast because we wouldn't be able to find employees there who were nice. But we can do it, and we do. Someday we may go international. And even internationally, we can maintain our culture if we go after people's hearts and grow our community. Summing Up In this chapter, we have seen how hiring for relational competence helps organizations achieve higher levels of relational coordination. Relational coordination, in turn, has a dramatic effect on both quality and efficiency performance. Increasingly, jobs require not only functional expertise, but also relational competence, the ability to interact with others to accomplish common goals. Indeed, people who perform jobs that require high levels of functional expertise also tend to need high levels of relational competence to integrate their work with the work of fellow employees. Organizations like Southwest Airlines that recognize the importance of relational competence look diligently for employees who have it, then develop it to even higher levels through training, will have a distinct performance advantage over organizations that do not. Chapter 7. Use Conflicts to Build Relationships Conflicts are a fact of life in highly interdependent work processes that span multiple functions. People in different functions occupy different thought worlds, that make shared understanding difficult. Not only are conflicts more likely to occur in highly interdependent processes, those conflicts are also more likely to have intensified effects. In flight departures, for example, conflict is a common occurrence. There is tremendous pressure to get the plane out on time, and at the same time there are multiple functions involved, each of which tends not to understand very well the perspective of the others. From pilots to cabin cleaners, the functions whose coordination is essential to achieving performance outcomes in the departure process tend to be divided by the lack of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. The resulting friction between these functions often contributes to poor performance. To many people, conflicts appear to be destructive and are to be avoided at all costs. However, there are potentially constructive aspects to conflict as well. Conflict expert Karen Jen demonstrated that task-related conflict can improve performance when it takes place in a setting where it is valued. But what does it mean to value conflict? How does an organization make conflict a constructive rather than a destructive force? This chapter shows that proactively identifying and resolving conflicts is a way to strengthen the relationships that underlie effective coordination. Conflict resolution is an often overlooked opportunity to build a shared understanding of the work process among participants who do not fully understand each other's perspectives. 
As we will see, Southwest Airlines invests a great deal of time and effort in doing just this. Conflict Resolution at Southwest Airlines At Southwest, managers are expected to take an active role in resolving cross-functional conflicts. A customer service manager explained her approach to conflict resolution. You're going to have conflict. You try to get them to talk it out. They can bring it up to the supervisors and myself. Hopefully, they'll do it in a positive tone. Maybe a wrong call was made in the heat of the moment. You give them the other side of it. It sometimes works to bring them together. You just shed light on why they did what they did. When conflicts arise at Southwest and are not resolved by the parties themselves, a conflict resolution process is used. A customer service agent in Phoenix explained, Some flight attendants have a better-than-thou attitude, but they are by far the exception. We try to minimize that attitude. You can turn people around even if they have an attitude by the way you treat them. Most people can be turned around. If it's a real conflict, we bring the people together and we don't leave here until it's resolved. If it's a conflict across groups, we might have an information-gathering meeting where we all sit down. One of Southwest's chief pilots explained his approach to conflict resolution. Because we are moving at a fast pace, miscommunication and misunderstandings happen sometimes. We take great pride in squaring it away as quickly as possible. Pilots and flight attendants, sometimes an interaction didn't go right between them. They are upset. Then we get them together and work it out in a teamwork approach. If you have a problem, the best thing is to deal with it yourself. If you can't, then we take it to the next step. We call a meeting of all the parties. A flight attendant base manager explained his experiences with conflict resolution and the positive outcomes that can result. We are encouraged to intervene if there is a problem between employees. If a problem emerges between a flight attendant and a provisioner, for example, we will have a team-building meeting. We investigate the problem, but it's not a whodunit. Just get the two to sit down and face each other. Each will give their perception of what happened. This happened recently with a flight attendant and a pilot. I get chills on my neck because of how wonderfully this worked out. Almost gagged me with a spoon. It was such a blessing. Each one said, that's not what I meant. We came away so enriched. The flight attendant had gotten a question from a customer about an unusual movement the plane made. The flight attendant asked, and the pilot did not respond. He felt she was questioning his judgment. She was asking because the customers are our most prized possession and the customer wanted to know. That pilot will have a different sense with every other flight attendant he sees. The meeting will have a ripple effect. The idea here is to pay a lot of attention to little things because they are so important. Of course, it is not easy to engage in conflict resolution, and it is not always effective. Colleen Barrett pointed out, It's not easy to pull these meetings off if the flight attendant is based in Baltimore and the gate agent is on the West Coast. Every now and then, one will blow up. Sometimes the problem is magnified by bringing them together rather than resolved, but I think when that happens, the bottom line is that both don't belong here. Executive Vice President of Operations Jim Wimberly agreed. Some people don't get it. We normally encourage them to pursue opportunities elsewhere. The Southwest philosophy 
is that individual conflicts should be dealt with on an interpersonal basis and should serve as a learning experience. However, the success of this philosophy depends a great deal on its implementation. At Southwest's Los Angeles station, which was struggling to stabilize staffing in the mid-1990s, conflict resolution was not being actively pursued. The Southwest philosophy regarding conflict resolution would have been helpful during this period, but rather than being actively surfaced, conflicts appeared to be suppressed, due in part to the station manager's anxiety about his performance. Southwest's top leadership played a critical role in getting conflict resolution back on track at the troubled Los Angeles station. One of headquarters' first moves in responding to the need for help was to encourage a dialogue between parties that were in conflict, particularly between the pilots who flew out of Los Angeles and the ramp agents there. Pilots agreed to work on the Los Angeles ramp for a week to increase understanding between the two functions. The effects were reportedly quite positive. How Conflict Resolution Evolved at Southwest Although many assumed that Southwest's success has come relatively easily, its leaders point out that many years of effort have been required to develop the practices such as proactive conflict resolution that support high-performance relationships. As Jim Wimberly testified, we have worked for years to get to this point. Around 1990, Southwest leaders promoted the idea of internal customers to get people to respond to each other. We were trying to improve communication across functional boundaries, Colleen Barrett explained. To reinforce the idea of internal customers, she and Wimberly revised the old irregularity report and made it into a device for conflict resolution among employees, Wimberly explained. We have a very heated, potentially dangerous operation on the ramp. There is a lot of stress when the plane is on the ground. Inevitably, some conflict will arise. If something happens out of the ordinary, if you feel someone didn't handle something correctly, you fill out a report. Under the old system, these reports would go from frontline employees to senior managers of their department and on to the CEO. According to Wimberly, so if there was a conflict between a flight attendant and a gate agent, or a ramp worker and a pilot, me and flight ops and Kelleher would get reports from everybody involved. Employees were taking the time to fill them out, and department heads were reading them, but usually not with high priority and they were not getting back to the employee. As a result, top managers began trying to push resolution of these conflicts and problems down to where they actually occur, Barrett explained. We got so many reports after a while, we changed the form. We added a line, if it involved a Southwest employee, have you discussed it with him or her? If we got a form where the answer was no, we would call and say, why don't you all have a little chat? Summing up, as we noted at the start of this chapter, conflicts can be expected to erupt in processes that span multiple functions, particularly when those processes are highly interdependent. In healthcare, as in many other industries, functional boundaries are reinforced by professional identities, specialized knowledge, and status differentials, undermining relationships and making communication more difficult. Status differences between doctors, nurses, therapists, social workers, and others 
create divisions among the parties who are involved in caring for the same patients. Managed care pressures and the resulting speed-up of care delivery have put additional pressure on care-provider relationships, increasing the incidence of conflict. Case managers are typically expected to take a hard line on limiting resource utilization, for example, while doctors and nurses are expected to push back to assure high-quality care for their patients. In addition, a nurse explained, miscommunication between the physician and the nurse is common because so many things are happening so quickly. But because patients are in and out so quickly, it's even more important to communicate well. However, processes for resolving conflicts are not always well developed. In some hospitals, no formal processes of any sort exist for cross-functional conflict resolution. Other hospitals take advantage of multidisciplinary meetings that were convened regularly for other purposes to work out conflicts about patient care, while others developed cross-functional councils or protocols dedicated to the resolution of cross-functional conflict. In one hospital, all staff members were required to take a pledge that they would seek to resolve conflicts by following a series of agreed-upon steps and would seek help if unsuccessful. Statistical analyses showed that the hospitals with formalized conflict resolution processes in place enjoyed higher levels of relational coordination among their doctors, nurses, physical therapists, social workers, and case managers, as well as higher quality, more efficient outcomes for patients. Management theorist Louis Pondy noted that one way to prevent conflict is to reduce interdependence by 1. Reducing dependence on common resources 2. Loosening up schedules or introducing buffers such as inventories or contingency funds and 3. Reducing pressures for consensus He also noted, however, that these techniques of preventing conflict may be costly in both direct and indirect costs, and that ultimately, interpersonal friction is one of the costs of running a tight ship. Rather than reducing cross-functional conflict by introducing costly buffers, and rather than simply accepting it as a cost of running a tight ship, this chapter shows that organizations can approach conflict as an opportunity to build relationships. Organizational theorist Andrew Vandeven argued that conflicts are necessary to process the uncertainty and information that is present in highly interdependent processes. In addition, he argued, conflicts among interdependent parties can serve as an occasion for learning about the process and for developing a clear understanding about goals, expectations, and behaviors. This perspective on conflict resolution is consistent with Karen Jen's finding that conflict leads to improved performance when it takes place in a context that values task-related conflict. Organizations should proactively seek out conflicts rather than allowing them to fester. Then managers should bring the parties together to better understand each other's perspective. If organizations do not identify and resolve cross-functional conflicts, those conflicts will weaken critical relationships of shared goals shared knowledge and mutual respect. When managers treat cross-functional conflict as an occasion for learning, they strengthen relationships between employees and boost performance of the work processes in which those employees are engaged. Chapter 8 
Bridge the Work-Family Divide Relationships at Southwest, characterized by shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect, are critical for getting work done effectively. Yet these relationships extend beyond the work itself, spilling over into friendships and even taking on some characteristics of family ties. A Southwest station manager commented, We're kind of a big family here, and families have fun together. The passengers are part of the family too, so we have fun with them. Employees regularly referred to their work relationships as ties of family and friendship, and management encouraged this view. The vice president of People explained, With family structures as they are these days, we often help our young employees to grow up. It lends to the family atmosphere here. Hugs were observed to be a common form of greeting, whether in the original Southwest station at Love Field or at Southwest's big East Coast station in Baltimore. Indeed, family was more than a metaphor at Southwest. Many employees reported family ties with other Southwest employees, something the company encouraged as long as those involved were not also in a reporting relationship. There seem to be powerful benefits to blurring the boundaries between work and non-work aspects of life for both organizations and their employees. Traditional organizational practices often demand that individuals disconnect themselves from non-work aspects of their identity, such as those related to family and spirituality, personal pain and tragedy, and racial or ethnic identity, while at work. As a result, individual attitudes and performance often suffer. Irving Goffman's classic study of self-presentation chronicles the efforts to which people go to present the correct self for the given context and the stresses and strains that are involved in doing so. Arlie Hochschild's work on The Managed Heart reports the stress these self-presentation requirements can place on service workers and the falseness sometimes perceived by customers. There is some evidence that people cooperate with an organization and give their best efforts to the extent that they identify with the organization. However, as many of us can attest, it is difficult to identify deeply with an organization in which one is encouraged or required to present a false self. To create healthier and more productive employees, organizations should strive to create more harmony between work and non-work aspects of life. On the other hand, clear boundaries may be needed to protect family time from the ever-encroaching grasp of paternalistic companies that seek to bring their employees' lives into the service of the company's own goals. Hoschild describes how work has become the safe haven that family used to represent, while family has come to seem more and more like work. It is a vicious cycle, she explains. When people spend too much time at work, they shortchange their family relationships. Their family relationships weaken and become more of a source of stress than comfort, as children and spouses act up to get the attention they need. As a result, employees may use work as a source of community and as a refuge from their dysfunctional family relationships. Both sides seem to agree, however, that for better or worse, this blurring of the boundaries between work and family can serve as a powerful force for building commitment to organizations. Southwest leverages the strength of its employees' external relationships to build strong internal relationships. 
However, Southwest also recognizes the hazards of blurring the boundaries between work and life. The organization can encompass so much of a person's time and loyalty that family and community ties suffer from neglect, thereby becoming useless as a source of strength for the employee or the organization. We will see how Southwest managers blur the boundary between work and life, and how they strive to do so by enhancing rather than undermining their employees' family and community ties. Encouraging Employees to Be Themselves at Work At Southwest, employees are encouraged to be themselves at work. As Herb Kelleher once explained, we try to allow our people to be themselves and not have to surrender their personality when they arrive at Southwest. You are not expected to park your personality and true identity at the door. Some of Southwest's reputation for being funky and fun comes from this expectation. Southwest customers are familiar with flight attendants who go beyond the written script for takeoff instructions to passengers and inject their own personalities into the role. Though being oneself is a concept normally associated with leisure time and not with work, it is an important concept at Southwest and seems to contribute to easing tensions between individuals and between functions. Recognizing Personal Pain and Triumph One way Southwest encourages employees to be themselves at work is by openly recognizing major events in the lives of employees and their families. According to Libby Sartain, former Vice President of People, people at Southwest care about one another's families. We recognize deaths and births. We help in times of tragedy. You do not see these things at other airlines. We hire people who have worked for other airlines who say they never received anything at home from their former employers, that they were never acknowledged in a personal way. To help in times of personal catastrophe, Southwest has a catastrophic fund. During a meeting with the Phoenix station manager, he received a phone call from Southwest's catastrophic fund. On the other end of the phone were the director of special projects, the director of in-flight, flight attendants, and several others from Southwest's headquarters. They had received a request for help from one of Southwest's Phoenix employees. The station manager told them what he knew of the employee's history, and they talked at length about what kind of help would be needed. Then they said goodbye, and the station manager resumed his meeting. The station manager acted as though making arrangements for the care of an employee in need was an unremarkable part of his workday. Similarly, Southwest President and Chief Operating Officer Colleen Barrett once discovered that a longtime employee whose work performance had inexplicably declined was facing $1,800 in legal bills due to divorce and custody proceedings. Barrett immediately sent the needed sum of money from her own account, recalling her own experience as a single mom. Through the recognition of its employees' personal tragedies and triumphs, Southwest brings the organization into the personal realm and the personal realm into the organization. When people disguise the pain they are experiencing in their personal life from their colleagues, they can experience a lack of internal connectedness. Recognition of their pain allows individuals to have more holistic identities at work, facilitating both their own personal health and their productivity. Efforts to Bridge the Work-Family Divide 
Southwest does not just encourage its employees to give back to the community. Southwest also has a long tradition of seeking to accommodate the needs of families so as not to burn out this important source of employee commitment. Southwest's biggest contribution to strengthening the family ties of its employees is the flexibility of scheduling the company offers to employees. According to Libby Sartain, we are a work and family friendly place. We're very flexible with scheduling, for example. But it's more of a flexible attitude here than formal policies. For instance, we don't officially have flex time and other family programs, but there's a lot of leeway for employees to trade shifts and so on. Indeed, Southwest has been recognized for its innovations in achieving scheduling flexibility for frontline employees through shift trading. In effect, this approach to achieving scheduling flexibility requires employees to use their workplace relationships to negotiate flexibility with each other, further integrating workplace relationships with family ties. Southwest's shift trading approach to achieving flexibility also reduces the administrative burden associated with flexibility and instead places it in the hands of employees to negotiate with one another. Southwest recognizes this scheduling flexibility as a major benefit for both the organization and its employees, enabling employees to meet their family commitments without neglecting their work commitments. As a result, Southwest has foregone workplace innovations that may have helped performance in principle, but that would have reduced employees' ability to schedule their work around family obligations. For example, some airlines have attempted to schedule the same employees to work together on particular flights over the course of an extended period, hoping to build more permanent teams. But Southwest decided against such scheduling practices, not wanting to reduce the scheduling flexibility enjoyed by Southwest employees. In effect, Southwest did not want to sacrifice the family relationships of its employees to build stronger working relationships. Southwest looks for synergies between family and work relationships and tries to avoid trading off one for the other. Summing up. Southwest's approach to work-family issues is to recognize and encourage the energy that good family and community relationships bring to the workplace and the energy that good working relationships bring to family and community life. In addition to energy, Organizations that encourage their employees to care for others at home and in the community will ultimately benefit from higher levels of relational competence in the workplace as employees exercise their relational skills both at home and at work. The energy and learning that employees gain from building strong family and community ties can be brought into the workplace and leveraged to achieve stronger working relationships and better organizational performance. Organizations should therefore be vigilant to ensure that relationships at work do not overwhelm and undermine the family and community relationships that are needed to sustain strong working relationships. Chapter 9. Create Boundary Spanners Many different employees play a critical role in coordinating flight departures at Southwest Airlines. Pilots, flight attendants, gate agents, ticket agents, baggage handlers, mechanics, and so forth. One role, however, is particularly central for coordinating flight departures, the operations agent. 
In the airline industry, the operations agent is at the center of communication among the various functional groups that are working to get the plane unloaded, serviced, reloaded, and on its way. The tasks of the operations agent include collecting information about the passengers, bags, freight, mail, and fuel going out on a particular flight, making calculations about how much of each can be loaded and where they should be loaded, consistent with weather and route information. Before the plane arrives, during its time at the gate, and after its departure, operations agents gather and process the needed information from each of the other functions, make adjustments as needed, and communicate those adjustments back to each of the functions. In so doing, operations agents bring together and reconcile sometimes conflicting perspectives among the various departments regarding passenger needs, commitments to freight and mail customers, and the requirements of flight safety. Operations agents, in effect, serve as boundary spanners, managing the flow of information across functional boundaries. Organization design theorists tell us that boundary spanners are particularly important for coordinating work when employees perform very different tasks and, as a result, have very different perspectives about what needs to be done. The boundary spanner has traditionally been seen as a mechanism for collecting, filtering, translating, interpreting, and disseminating knowledge across organizational boundaries. However, we learn in this chapter that an effective boundary spanner does more than process information. An effective boundary spanner is also engaged in relationship building, developing relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect among fellow employees to facilitate the coordination of work. Still, boundary spanners are costly because they require an entire work group whose primary task is coordination. One way to reduce the cost of boundary spanners is to reduce their staffing levels and increase the number of projects or flight departures they are assigned to coordinate. Since the mid-1980s, many airlines have been doing just this, attempting to make operations agents more efficient by relying more and more on computer interfaces to bring together the information required to dispatch a flight. And indeed, these new systems allow operations agents to be more efficient. With information technology, operations agents can be located centrally and can coordinate up to 15 departures at a time. Operations agents read a computer file into which each function has input the relevant information, make contacts when there is a discrepancy or need for further information, then make the necessary judgments and decisions before dispatching the flight. However, the quality and detail of communication is not very high in this arrangement. The operations agent is remotely located and is forced by workload to rely almost exclusively on the computer interface. Operations agents had traditionally served as a source of social cohesion across functions in the stations. Operations agents used to be well-known personalities because they came into face-to-face -face contact with each function during the pre-planning or implementation phase of each departure. The on-site operations centers where they worked used to serve as watering holes, as one of the few locations where members of diverse functions such as pilots, fuelers, baggage handlers, mechanics, and customer service agents could congregate comfortably. In their efforts to reduce the staffing levels of operations agents, 
Airlines lost the personal interactions that built strong relationships across functional boundaries. Only Southwest Airlines has recognized this unique role of the operations agent and staffs the job generously to permit it to be done well. Boundary Spanning at Southwest Airlines Moving in the opposite direction of the rest of the industry, Southwest increased the staffing of the operations agent to even higher levels than the other airlines had traditionally used, allowing the operations agent to play an even greater role in the flight departure process. Each individual flight was assigned its own dedicated on-site operations agent, who engaged in face-to-face -face contact with each function before, during, or after the turnaround of that flight, then went on to concentrate on another incoming flight. As noted above, the job of an operations agent involves a great deal of information processing. A Southwest supervisor explained the basic tasks. A couple of hours before the flight arrives, an operations agent is assigned to the flight. The agent gets a release from dispatch in Dallas. The release tells if the plane needs anything, how much fuel due to weather conditions and time of year. The ops agent writes that down and computes the total amount of weight that plane can take. The ops agent tells the ramp and freight agents what's going out and they say what they have to put in. The gate and ticket agents take the information and decide how many passengers can go. The ops agent is dealing with the ticket agents, is phoning everybody. There is constant communication between the groups. There are passengers who need special care, for example. We interact with pilots and flight attendants about the weather, information from the families, anything. Then, when the plane arrives, the ops agent sets up the jetway, gets everybody out, and everybody boarded. He gets the cargo slip, which says how much stuff has been put on board and where, then computes the weight and balance and hands that information off to the pilot. After the door is closed, the ops agent pulls back the jetway. The information processing tasks in this example are not very distinctive and could certainly be more highly automated, as they have been at other airlines, allowing for a far greater workload than one flight at a time per operations agent. And yet the boundary-spanning role at Southwest is highly regarded, and it is often credited for playing a critical role in achieving reliable flight departures. According to Donna Conover, Southwest's Executive Vice President of Customers, the operations agent's job is important. It's their responsibility to coordinate the flight. You need someone quarterbacking the flight departure. We are unique in that our operations agents are assigned to lead only one departure at a time. It's a good investment. According to a Southwest pilot, dispatch doesn't have the time to dedicate to each individual departure. The operations agent is the team leader when the airplane is on the ground. And according to a customer service agent, the operations room is the heartbeat of the airline. It's totally the heartbeat. They are real selective about who they put there. They want people with smarts. That's a part of our overall coordination, what makes it work. The centrality of the operations agent role at Southwest Airlines is supported by Southwest's promotion policies. Employees typically come into this job after serving on the ramp and in customer service bringing the perspective of both key areas to the job. 
The operations agent job is also considered to be a necessary step before becoming a ramp or customer service manager because of the broad, cross-functional perspective one gains from being an operations agent. But why? What is so important about this role that Southwest staffs it at one flight departure per agent, while other airlines staff it at three to fifteen flight departures per agent? Upon closer observation, it became clear that the operations agents at Southwest play a critical social role as well, helping to build relationships across functional boundaries. At Southwest, unlike at the other airlines, the boundary spanner role involves face-to-face -face interactions with every party involved in the flight departure process. It is not coordination from a distance, conducted primarily through a computer interface, as other airlines have tried to achieve. It is coordination with a human face. The Boundary Spanner as Relationship Builder In this chapter, we have gained a more holistic perspective on the Boundary Spanner. Boundary Spanners act as gatekeepers of critical information, and as such, are influential in determining how the environment is perceived. Boundary Spanners interpret and translate information for other organization members in a variety of settings, including research and development, new product development, mergers and acquisitions, and patient care. However, we have seen that the Boundary Spanner works not only by sharing information, but also by building relationships. By developing a web of relationships across boundaries, the Boundary Spanner constructs a broader sense of shared identity and vision among previously divided parties, creating opportunities for collective action among them. The actions of an effective boundary spanner can contribute to creating more permeable boundaries, which leads to enhanced coordination and improved performance. This relational role played by boundary spanners has also been demonstrated in a very different context from flight departures, mergers and acquisitions, where building connective tissue and forging social connections are seen as critical contributions that boundary spanners can make. Summing up, boundary spanners play a critical role in coordinating work processes, but the boundary spanner is most effective when the position is conceived to be more than an automatable conduit for information exchange. When the boundary spanner role is generously staffed, the boundary spanner can develop a web of relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect across functional boundaries. Coordination that occurs within this web of relationships is more effective and leads to improved performance of the flight departure process. This new understanding of the boundary spanner as a builder of relationships suggests a different way of thinking about staffing levels for the position and a more skeptical view of the possibility of using information technology to replace the boundary spanner. The substitution of automated communication for boundary spanners may sacrifice the exchange of complex information and the development of shared understandings across functional boundaries, a loss that is not apparent from a purely technical point of view. Though information technology can be a facilitator, it is not expected to be an effective substitute. When a job is mediated largely through a computer or a telephone, an important element of social interaction is lost. The loss of social interaction weakens relationships and weakens critical performance parameters. 
These limitations on the effective use of information technology exist because coordination is not simply about the transfer of information. Instead, coordination requires the construction of shared meaning in order to facilitate collective action. As we see at Southwest Airlines, boundary spanners can play this role, building relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect across functional boundaries. Chapter 10. Avoid finger-pointing, measure performance broadly. Like many organizations in other industries, airlines have traditionally relied on systems of functional accountability. Outcomes of the departure process are typically divided into departmental objectives, for which individual departments are held accountable. Each departure delay is traced to the department that is thought to have caused it, then, on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis, the percentage of on-time departures is calculated for each department. This system of accountability tends to generate a search for departmental failure. Yet, because of the task interdependencies in the flight departure process, it is often difficult to determine which department caused a particular delay. One rule of thumb often used is, whoever was off the plane last. If the gate agent who was boarding passengers was last off the plane, it is presumed to be a customer service delay. If the ramp agents loading baggage were last off the plane, it is presumed to be a ramp delay. If the fueler was the last one off, it is presumed to be a fueling delay. Therefore, the common pattern is a race to finish one's own assigned task before the other groups finish their tasks, even when cooperation between the groups would improve the speed and quality of the process. Worse, participants tend to hide information to avoid blame, thus undermining the potential for learning. Through these unintended dynamics, functional accountability undermines relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect among those who must coordinate their tasks in order to achieve high performance. To achieve quality outcomes in the face of weak coordination, requires longer turnaround times and higher staffing levels, resulting in tremendous efficiency losses. This chapter shows that there are constructive alternatives to these systems of functional accountability. Cross-functional performance measures encourage participants to focus on learning rather than blaming when things go wrong, thereby bolstering relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. We will see how Southwest Airlines in particular has learned these lessons. Performance Measurement at Southwest Airlines Determining the cause of a delay had once been a conflict-ridden process at Southwest, as it was at other airlines, and had often deteriorated from problem-solving to finger-pointing and blame avoidance. Southwest countered this tendency in the early 1990s by instituting a team delay, which allowed less precise reporting of the cause of delays with the goal of diffusing blame and encouraging learning. According to Jim Wimberly, Executive Vice President of Operations, we had too many angry disagreements between flight attendants and gate agents about whose delay it was. It was too hard to determine whose fault it was. One of Southwest's chief pilots explained, The team delay is used to point out problems between two or three different employee groups in working together. We used to do it in the following way. If people were still in the jetway at departure time, it was a station delay. If people were on board at departure time, it was a flight crew delay. 
But now, if you see everybody working as a team and it's a team problem, you call it a team delay. It's been a very positive thing. In addition to the team delay, Southwest has about 10 other delay categories, far fewer than at other major airlines. The reduced precision of performance measurement did not appear to concern Southwest leaders. How does Southwest motivate performance? A station manager explained. Through personal pride. Because we've always done it, I guess. Also, we track the source of delays. Usually it's a situation rather than a person who is at fault. We take a delay when the situation warrants it. Besides this, we have delay codes to identify which department caused the delay. We try to figure out what caused a delay, but we don't do much finger-pointing. We find that the more you point fingers, the more problems go underground rather than getting solved. The only punitive measures are taken when there's a personnel delay, when someone just wasn't there to do their job. Supervisors often refer disciplinary problems upwards to the department manager if they can't solve them. Southwest also uses rewards to motivate performance, he explained. Customers send letters to headquarters with compliments or complaints, about 5,000 per month. These letters are sent to the relevant station. Then, when I get it, I will put a smiley face sticker on it and frame it. People like to see their name up there. We have Agent of the Month awards in each department. The winners are chosen by their fellow employees. Then managers and supervisors pick agents of the quarter from among the agents of the month. All agents of the quarter come to an award lunch to receive their plaques. We also use $5 meal vouchers to reward people for good performance. Supervisors do this, and agents reward each other by sending love reports. Accountability versus Learning American and Southwest are on opposite ends of the spectrum with respect to performance measurement. At American, the purpose of performance measurement is accountability, often with a punitive twist. At Southwest, the purpose of performance measurement is to learn and improve over time. How did these airlines develop such different approaches? American Airlines was designed at its inception to operate in a traditional military fashion, with managers given responsibility for performance and frontline workers responsible only for following commands. When Robert Crandall became CEO in the 1980s, he tried to make American Airlines less bureaucratic by increasing the accountability of employees at every level of the company. Using new systems for measuring and attributing performance outcomes, Crandall fostered a culture of accountability in which managers at every level would be held strictly accountable for their performance. Along with increased managerial accountability, he introduced employee participation throughout the organization to push power and accountability down to frontline employees. According to a station manager, under Crandall, we got the idea that everybody was accountable for results, not just top management. He started doing very tough reviews of budgets, for example, and increased the flow of company information to frontline workers by putting video machines in the ground workers' ready room and starting a company paper. People took on the idea of accountability. A lot of communication started to take place. Crandall made these changes in response to deregulation with an eye toward the competition. Another station manager had a less positive perspective on this approach to accountability. When Crandall came in the early 1980s, accountability was so new for us that it had a dramatic impact, even though it was based on functional goals. Then people figured out how to game it, and headquarters kept tightening the screws. In her view, 
the new measures were not conducive to cross-functional coordination. Accountability was perceived to be punitive, which tended to make people focus on pleasing their superiors, and fear making mistakes or giving power to subordinates. Also, accountability at each level was pinned to individuals or functions rather than to the larger process, making people tend to look out for themselves and avoid recrimination, rather than focusing on their shared goals, on-time departures, and satisfied customers. Several managers interviewed at American Airlines commented that there was a split between the stations and headquarters, and that the information flow between them was based largely on the numbers, According to a manager of human resources, in this company, accountability is statistical. Managers are not judged on how well they delegate. They are judged by their results. The station manager is judged on the numbers and not on how he got them. He could have used a club for all it matters to his rewards. An employee relations manager concurred. All that matters is the numbers. How you achieve them is secondary. This is part of the culture of fear. The reaction to the split between field and headquarters on the part of some station managers was bitterness. Better communication clearly matters at the station level, but it doesn't make a bit of difference what they do at headquarters, according to a station manager. Managers perceived that they were judged strictly on the numbers. Information in the form of numbers went from stations to headquarters for evaluation, but there was little discussion and little learning. At the same time, Managers transmitted to frontline workers the pressures they perceived from headquarters, and at times used methods to achieve goals that created resentment. Employees were well aware of their manager's performance evaluation system and how it affected them. A customer service agent explained with bitterness, Here you only care about delays. Otherwise, the little report card won't look good that week. The ultimate goal is not the customers. It's the report card. A Different Approach to Performance Measurement at Southwest Like American, Southwest had adopted a formal, hierarchical, organizational structure at its inception. But given the airline's strategic focus on quick turnarounds, coordination of the flight departure process by frontline employees was emphasized from the start. Jim Wimberly, Executive Vice President of Operations, explained, It's not folks in engineering do this, folks in marketing do that. We recognized early on that it would only work if we worked as teams. Southwest's approach to accountability can be seen not only at the front line with the team delay, but also in the relationship between field and headquarters. In stark contrast to what was seen at other airlines, particularly American, there is a two-way flow of information between field and headquarters at Southwest, and appears to be a great deal of learning. When station managers at Southwest were asked how their own performance was assessed, they were quite vague about it. I don't know, was one typical response, given with a laugh. I'll hear about it if I'm not doing a good job. I get free reign if I do okay. It is watched, but there is no fear factor, said the Chicago station manager. Everybody here is a self-motivator. At American, the relationship was more hands-off, based on a much different flow of information. There was a perception by managers that they were judged strictly on the numbers. Headquarters doesn't care how you get the numbers, just that you get them, was repeated time and again. Information in the form of numbers went from stations to headquarters for evaluation, but there was little discussion and little learning. Summing up. 
This chapter shows that cross-functional performance measurement improves coordination through its positive impact on relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect, resulting in better performance. However, this approach to performance measurement flies in the face of classical organizational theory. Traditional management theorists, including Max Weber and Chester Bernard, believed that functional accountability was the most effective way to achieve control. If you could clearly delineate someone's realm of responsibility, they believed, then you could clearly measure how they are doing and reward or punish them for those results. Functional accountability was also a means to avoid overload. Herbert Simon argued that human beings have a limited scope of attention within which they can act in a rational way. Simon recommended functional accountability as a way to focus employee attention on a limited set of responsibilities. He recognized the risks of functional accountability, particularly that employees would tend to focus on functional goals at the expense of organizational goals and might therefore fail to cooperate across functional boundaries. Still, he believed, the gains achieved from functional accountability outweighed these risks. As we have just seen, however, trying to achieve control through functional accountability can seriously undermine information sharing and learning. Preoccupation with functional accountability leads to blaming, which in turn causes information to be distorted or to go underground. Because organizations need to use mistakes as a basis for learning, they should not rely on functional performance evaluation. Traditional measurement systems are flawed because they orient employee attention toward functional rather than cross-functional outcomes and because they provide inadequate information for learning. To orient employees toward cross-functional outcomes and to provide more useful feedback about what to do, cross-functional performance measures should be used to supplement traditional functional measurement systems. These insights are supported by much of the recent organizational literature. What we learned in this chapter, in addition, is that traditional performance measurement systems undermine performance because they weaken relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect among those whose cooperation is critical for achieving the organization's performance objectives. Chapter 11. Keep Jobs Flexible at the Boundaries Job descriptions that limit employees from doing each other's work can be found in many organizations. Traditionally, managers have assumed that once a worker has been provided with a job description, the roles and tasks described represent the functional borders within which the employee must work. Encroaching on someone else's job territory has been considered a terrible offense. But rigid, well-defined job responsibilities are no longer considered necessary or useful in many organizations for several reasons. First, traditional job descriptions are considered to be too static in a dynamic economy. Such job descriptions assume that the same tasks and skills that are relevant at one point in time will continue to be relevant in the future. Second, traditional job descriptions focus too much on specific tasks rather than on broader, more generic characteristics and behaviors that are needed to achieve organizational success. Third, with greater job flexibility, it is possible to utilize people more fully, achieving higher labor productivity. However, there is another benefit to making jobs flexible at the boundaries, as we will see in this chapter.
Flexible job boundaries help to build stronger relationships between functions, improving coordination between them. In response to these perceived benefits, there has been an effort to broaden job descriptions to allow employees to take the actions they see as necessary to accomplish the organization's goals. However, broadening job descriptions is difficult to achieve because it threatens people's sense of security and introduces an element of the unknown into their jobs. These fears can prevent organizations from broadening job descriptions, particularly in unionized settings like the airline industry, where job descriptions are contractually negotiated through collective bargaining. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, job descriptions were a major subject of negotiation as airline management sought to reduce inefficiencies to compete better in a deregulated environment. One way that a union can seek to protect the jobs of its members is by negotiating job descriptions or work rules that prevent employees in other work groups from performing the work of its members. However, although these rigid job descriptions or work rules seem to boost job security, particularly in the face of potential downsizing, they also create boundaries that undermine working relationships. Southwest Airlines has successfully negotiated flexible job descriptions in all of its union contracts. This chapter describes Southwest's approach toward job flexibility compared to its competitors, then illustrates the impact of flexible jobs on relational coordination and performance. Job Flexibility at Southwest Airlines On the one hand, each person at Southwest has a very clear and specific job description. According to a Southwest station manager, we train people to do a specific function and we train them very well. They are exposed to other functions in their training, but we don't cross-utilize. On the other hand, a Southwest employee's job includes helping other colleagues with their work whenever necessary. A Southwest pilot explained, This is not like People Express, an airline of the 1980s known for job descriptions that encompassed a wide range of functional responsibilities. Each person has a specific job, but part of the job is to help the other person. Then it's easier to work in a more efficient manner. An additional benefit of flexible job boundaries was that Southwest managers and supervisors were permitted to work side-by-side side with frontline employees. Some made a point of doing so on a regular basis, while others pitched in primarily on busy days. Job Flexibility at Continental Airlines Because most work groups were not organized at Continental after the Frank Lorenzo union-busting era, flexible jobs were thought to be one of Continental's competitive advantages. According to reports from Continental employees, there were no contractual job descriptions that excluded employees in one group from doing the work of another group, aside from those that were mandated by the Federal Aviation Administration. Even supervisors were not prevented from doing the work of frontline employees. Employees were hard-pressed to think of any exclusionary job descriptions at Continental, According to one employee, the only work rules that I can think of are that only flight attendants can do safety demos, but this is both the FAA and the contract. It's okay to help people get seated, though. The mechanics at Continental, though not unionized, did have job descriptions that were somewhat traditional. Company policies and procedures are the work rules for ops, customer service, and ramp, but maintenance has its own work rules. 
completely different, more along the line of union rules. Their supervisors have to come through the ranks, for example, but people can help each other out. Even the maintenance guys will ask if they can help. The relative absence of exclusionary job descriptions was useful for the implementation of the Continental Light Quick Turnaround Operation, which had been designed to rely on cross-functional teamwork. The manager of customer service explained, In light, it can be really critical to do everything you can. We may run people down from the ticket counter to help clean the plane or do catering. Gate agents will also help to clean. There are certain flights that the flight attendants have to clean, but everyone helps. I'll even go and clean the planes. Job Flexibility at United Airlines United Airlines shared in common with American a traditional attitude toward job boundaries that proved difficult to transform. A ramp agent explained, We try not to get out of our classifications because it can get grieved. It's a silent type of thing. If they don't have enough manpower, that's for management to fix. As a result of this attitude, it was perceived that unions have always been an obstacle to productivity at United, according to a United manager. One result has been animosity between union and non-union work groups at United. A United ticket agent explained to me that unions are disgusting. Another manager explained, Covered work is a big deal at United. It's very symbolic. We are trying to transcend those lines. Customer service reps will carry the bag down to the ramp when the bins are full on board. There have been no objections to that. But a union person would say no. Unions have always been an obstacle to productivity at United. Even within the International Association of Machinists, which represents mechanics, ramp agents, baggage transfer agents, cabin cleaners, and so forth, only mechanics can put in the chocks under the plane's wheels when the plane comes to a stop at the gate. Everybody would sit and wait for the mechanic to arrive if necessary. Employees for the shuttle belonged to the same unions as their counterparts in mainline United Airlines, but the success of the shuttle was thought to depend on increasing the flexibility of jobs so employees could step over job boundaries to help each other out. A gate agent described the changes that had occurred in the shuttle operation. On this side, the shuttle side, there is an emphasis on teamwork. In mainline, you have all the unions, ramp, cabin, maintenance. In the shuttle, we were able to cross that line. I don't know how we did it. It's everybody's job. On the other side, you try not to offend anyone. You ask for their permission. Can you do this? Can I do that? There's a different mentality in the interaction with other groups. Here it's more informal. Flight attendants help cabin service clean the cabin. I wish it worked over there. Consistent with these reports, a ramp employee for the shuttle told me, Here we can go up on the jetway and check for bags if it's a heavy flight. Much of the relaxation of rigid work boundaries on the shuttle had been accomplished through tacit agreement among employees rather than through formal union negotiations. Nonetheless, these changes had reportedly had a notable effect on cross-functional coordination. One Southwest pilot observed the job flexibility that had developed at the United shuttle and took this change as evidence that United could become a serious competitor to Southwest over time. I've seen things at the shuttle that amaze me. Interesting departures. Now you see the pilots helping out. You never saw that at United before. They're a formidable foe, don't get me wrong. Inspired in part by the new employee ownership, 
and in part by the shuttle experience, United as a whole began working to increase job flexibility. According to the Los Angeles station manager, some progress was achieved. By late 1994, it was possible, for example, for a customer service representative to go into the bag room to help identify bags. The station manager explained, As long as it's presented in a positive way and not as trying to do your job, it's not been a problem. There has been no grieving it so far. We say someone's just trying to assist you. It's for a better product. Maintenance sometimes puts the jetway in place to help customer service reps. We are trying to get more of it. There have been no grievances over this since I've been here. Late 1993. Similar reports were heard in United Airlines' Boston station. Though changes were still marginal, they carried great symbolic importance. As a result of the shuttle's greater job flexibility and other practices highlighted in this book, the United Shuttle achieved significantly higher levels of relational coordination compared to United's non-shuttle sites. 55% versus 42% of cross-functional ties were rated by employees as strong or very strong. Job Flexibility at American Airlines Americans' management had worked hard over the years to achieve flexible job boundaries. In the 1983 contract with the Transport Workers Union, contractual changes allowed all jobs on the ramp, except mechanics, to be merged into one classification, ramp service worker. However, restrictive job boundaries between ramp employees and mechanics, and between ramp employees and customer service employees, still remained and appeared to undermine working relationships among frontline employees. Customer service agents in the Boston station reported that if you want to help the cabin crews clean up because you're running late, you can't, because that's their work. Also, when a passenger brings excess baggage to the gate, union-wise the ramp won't come up and get it. We send it back to the passenger and they take it back to the ticket counter, even at the risk that the customer might miss his or her flight. Formal job descriptions also restricted the extent to which flight attendants could assist airport employees to achieve faster turnarounds. According to an American station manager, At Southwest, flight attendants collect trash on the plane. They go through the aisles and collect trash periodically throughout the flight. Our attendants do not. Our ground people have to do it. By the time the plane gets to the ground, it is full of trash. It creates extra work unnecessarily, and it slows down our turnaround time. Why Flexible Boundaries Are So Uncommon Given the performance benefits of flexible boundaries, why is encroaching on someone else's job territory so often considered a terrible offense? Although rigid job descriptions are often blamed on unions, they were originally developed as part of a management system designed to improve workplace functioning. They were seen as a way to rationalize the division of labor and prevent work overload. Managers sought to establish formal job descriptions because they were considered to be the most effective way to manage a workforce in settings where there was little change and where environmental parameters were stable and predictable. Employees came to value job descriptions as a means of preventing work overload and as a means of protecting themselves against managers who might otherwise treat them arbitrarily. In addition, clear work boundaries may serve the interests of employees by permitting them to deepen their areas of expertise and therefore to take greater pride and ownership in their work. 
While specialization is clearly beneficial for all of these reasons, there is increasing evidence that flexibility at the boundaries of jobs is also beneficial and that it can be achieved without losing the benefits of specialization. In particular, flexible job boundaries are conducive to coordination because they create more opportunities for communication across functional boundaries, therefore enabling employees to develop stronger relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. Traditional job descriptions impede coordination by creating over-specialized knowledge and detracting from communication among parties who are engaged in interdependent tasks. Especially in settings that require a more spontaneous form of coordination, it is important that jobs be defined flexibly enough that people can come to understand the jobs of those with whom they must coordinate. Flexible job boundaries enable people to experience directly the work of those with whom their work most closely relates. Summing up, we have seen in this chapter the importance of flexible jobs for building strong relationships and high performance. Flexible jobs tend to get a lot of attention in the airline industry relative to other organizational practices that are also important for achieving coordination. This attention is warranted not because flexible jobs are more important than the other practices, but rather because flexible jobs are one of the hardest to achieve, given the two-way negotiations and the high levels of trust required to achieve them. As Southwest's leaders pointed out on several occasions, flexible jobs are not simply achieved once and for all. Flexible jobs are an outcome of negotiations that occur repeatedly over time. Every time a contract is negotiated, the flexibility of Southwest's jobs is at stake. In the next chapter, we will explore the labor management partnerships that have made flexible jobs possible at Southwest Airlines. Chapter 12. Make Unions Your Partners, Not Adversaries Because of its reputation for teamwork, most people assume that Southwest Airlines has no unions, or very few unionized employees, relative to the rest of the airline industry. Indeed, a vice president of the United Auto Workers said in 1994 that Southwest's competitive advantage was its non-union status. Similarly, a top airline industry analyst recently told a group of students at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology that Southwest is not shackled by traditional unions. In fact, Southwest is the most highly unionized airline in the U.S. airline industry and since its founding has been one of the five most highly unionized airlines in the industry. Because the airline industry is more unionized than almost any other industry in the United States, this means that Southwest is one of the most highly unionized companies in the United States. Southwest's employees are represented by several traditional unions, including the Transport Workers Union, the International Association of Machinists, and the International Brotherhood of Teamsters as well as a pilot's union that is unique to Southwest, the Southwest Airlines Pilots Association, similar to American Airlines' company-specific pilots union, the Allied Pilots Association. It is remarkable that Southwest, a well-recognized success story in the business world, has gained almost no recognition for its remarkable accomplishments in the realm of labor management relations. The airline industry is highly unionized, and managers in the industry often blame their unions for high costs and inefficiencies. 
but across the industry there are important variations in the quality of labor relations and in the strategies managers have used to work with or against their unions. Union representation within an organization can give that organization increased legitimacy with its employees and thus serve as a key element of a system of coordination and control if employee representatives are respected and communication is open. However, the leaders of some unionized organizations attempt to build trust with frontline employees by bypassing their selected representatives and communicating directly with them, while others pursue a dual strategy of both communicating directly with frontline employees and working in partnership with their union representatives. The risks and rewards of the two strategies are well established. By attempting to compete with union representatives, managers risk losing the trust of employees who remain loyal to their representatives. Managers also risk dividing the group against itself and groups against each other. This adversarialism undermines relationships among frontline employees and throughout the company, reducing the potential for high performance. Labor Relations at Southwest Airlines Although Southwest is highly unionized, Southwest has experienced little labor conflict relative to its competitors. Looking more closely inside the organization, one learns that Southwest has long emphasized the importance of labor management partnerships. The respect that Southwest managers demonstrated for employees and their elected representatives reinforced frontline employees' trust for the company and their identification with the company's goals. In addition, the respect demonstrated by top management also helped to foster respectful relationships between the unions themselves. A longtime operations agent explained, At Southwest, everybody supports everybody else's union in the whole aspect of the thing. That's just the way it is here. This respectful attitude between unions stands in stark contrast to the other airlines, where derogatory comments were frequently heard about the unions that represented other employee groups. Respectful relationships between management and frontline employee unions helped to set the tone for respectful relationships throughout Southwest Airlines. Summing up, we have seen in this chapter that the quality of the labor management relationship can influence relationships throughout the organization with likely effects on organizational performance. A recent study shows that it is not the level of union representation but rather the quality of the relationship that determines organizational performance. Conflict reduces quality, efficiency, and financial performance, while a positive workplace culture improves these outcomes. Unionization by itself has little impact on these outcomes, either positive or negative. But surely there is some basis for the deeply held American belief that unions are bad for business. In What Do Unions Do?, Richard Freeman and James Medoff report that union membership can produce loyalty to union goals at the expense of loyalty to company goals. However, they found that union representation can also provide an avenue for employee voice in the organization, potentially creating a greater sense of shared goals with their employer. So long as employees are not forced to choose between loyalty to their union and loyalty to their employer. That is, union representation can reinforce shared goals between employees and employers so long as the employer recognizes and respects the role of the union and seeks its partnership. Similarly, 
Union membership can foster strong ties among employees. When multiple unions are present, it may be even more critical for management to show the utmost respect for each one. Any disrespect shown by management toward one union tends to result in disrespect shown by employees toward their fellow employees, undermining critical relationships throughout the organization. Union representation can support cross-functional coordination and performance so long as employers show respect for employee interests as articulated through their collective voice. At Southwest Airlines, respectful relationships between company management and the unions chosen by frontline employees appear to set the tone for respectful relationships throughout the company. As Southwest leaders pointed out on several occasions, however, Positive labor management relations are not achieved once and for all. Rather, they have to be reproduced every day. The relationship is never complete. As Beverly Carmichael, Southwest's newly appointed vice president of people, pointed out recently, it's like any other relationship. You have to live it every day. Chapter 13 Build Relationships with Your Suppliers Southwest has the reputation of being an independent company that prefers to do things by itself. It doesn't pay travel agent commissions or participate in industry-wide online reservation systems. Southwest has not joined any strategic alliances with other airlines, despite the increasing popularity of these alliances in the industry, and despite the preliminary evidence that alliances enable airlines to increase both market share and revenues. Southwest outsources none of its services other than fueling and offline heavy maintenance checks, while other airlines outsource fueling and catering, and in their smaller stations often outsource ramp and maintenance functions and occasionally even customer service functions. When asked why, Colleen Barrett answered, We would prefer to just rely on ourselves and take that growth internally. There are advantages to alliances, but there's not another airline out there that could communicate with us. There are no airlines that have systems similar to ours. We do not want to hold for other airlines or slow our operations. At the same time, however, Southwest relies on outside parties to do what it cannot do, manage the airports, run the air traffic control system, and produce the airplanes that they fly. With these outside parties on whom they must rely, Southwest has taken a proactive partnership-oriented approach that appears to generate significant payoffs to both Southwest and the other parties in the relationship. Benefits of Partnering with Your Suppliers We see that Southwest has invested substantial time in developing effective partnerships with the three outside parties on which it is most dependent, airports, air traffic control, and aircraft manufacturers. Each of these parties provides a critical resource to Southwest that Southwest cannot produce on its own. Organizational scholars Russell Johnston and Paul Lawrence call these partnerships value-adding partnerships, arguing that such partnerships have advantages over independent companies trying to negotiate with each other in the absence of a partnership and advantages over vertically integrated companies that bring all activities in-house. Value-adding partnerships are a set of independent companies that work closely together to manage the flow of goods and services along the entire value-added chain. 
Value-adding partnerships allow each party to focus on what they do best. In the case of Southwest Airlines, Southwest can fly the airplanes, while the airports manage the ground facilities, the U.S. government monitors air traffic control, and Boeing makes the airplanes. And yet the partnership between Southwest and each of these parties generates better outcomes for each party than any could achieve in a more traditional supplier relationship. Value-adding partnerships can be observed in other industries as well, where some of the most successful organizations are those that have built close partnerships with their suppliers. In the auto industry, for example, supplier integration has been on the increase since auto manufacturers learned from the Japanese model about the benefits of close collaborative relationships. A recent study of auto industry supplier relationships found an extraordinary increase in communications between customers and suppliers, independent of formal status as independent or vertically integrated. The volume of face-to-face -face fax, phone, and email exchanges was huge and increasing. All types of interaction occurred, on average, between a daily and weekly basis. In the apparel industry, a similar trend has occurred. Until recently, most channels in the textile and apparel industries have been characterized by arm's-length relationships among relatively autonomous firms. But now, the successful apparel manufacturers and retailers are those who have developed well-integrated supply chains in which information and know-how are readily shared across organizational boundaries. Similar partnerships have emerged in the distribution of drugs and health care products. In the delivery of health services, value-adding partnerships are beginning to emerge among hospitals as managed care dictates shorter lengths of stay in acute care hospitals, requiring that most care be provided by external parties. Some hospitals have found that the same capabilities that improve the coordination of care internally can be leveraged to improve the coordination of care with external parties. Summing up. Southwest's partnership approach is radically different from the traditional approach to supplier relations. In the old model, organizations were independent parties who transacted with each other at arm's length through formal contracts, keeping information close to the chest. Cooperation occurred only within organizations, while careful arm's length negotiation with minimal information sharing was the normal mode for dealing with parties external to the organization. But when there is more uncertainty in the environment, there is much more that organizations can learn from one another. Because of the benefits of learning, both parties have more to gain than to lose from the sharing of information. Although there may be doubt and mistrust at the outset, once the cooperative exploration of ambiguity begins, the returns to the partners from further joint discoveries are so great that it pays to keep cooperating. Ultimately, this ability to partner is an acquired skill like any other, and one with potentially significant effects on organizational success. What additional insights do we gain from the example of Southwest Airlines? We learn that relationships are critical for coordinating across organizational boundaries, just as they are critical for coordinating across functional boundaries. In order to partner effectively with the outside parties whose cooperation Southwest has deemed critical for its own success, Southwest seeks to build relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect with them. 
Indeed, the same relational competence that Southwest employees have developed in their internal relationships has been leveraged and extended to their relationships with outside parties. By treating these suppliers as partners, Southwest effectively extends its sphere of influence beyond its employees to encompass its entire value chain. Part 3. Building High-Performance Relationships and Keeping Them Chapter 14. How the Ten Southwest Practices Reinforce or Undermine Each Other Throughout this book, we have seen that Southwest Airlines' extraordinary performance is not due simply to its outstanding leadership, its funky culture, or its unique operating strategy, although it has all three. Rather, Southwest's extraordinary performance can be traced to a set of organizational practices that deliberately overcomes the divisive effects of functional boundaries by transforming relationships between management and frontline employees among frontline employees and with key external parties. Coordination is supported by a coherent set of organizational practices that encourages people to think of their jobs not as a set of discrete tasks, but instead as linked to broader processes involving people in other functional areas. In many work settings, including the airline industry, the functions involved in delivering a particular product or service are divided by status, expertise, and geography. It is Southwest's attention to relationships designed in through a consistent set of organizational practices that accounts for much of Southwest's performance advantage. This is good news because it means that other organizations can adopt Southwest's powerful organizational practices without attempting to recreate its culture. Adopting a set of organizational practices may involve a significant investment of time and energy, but it is more feasible than trying to adopt the culture of another organization. And as we have seen, these organizational practices ultimately do support the culture for which Southwest is so well known. However, these organizational practices are not standalone elements. Rather, they are mutually supporting, so that their total effect is likely to be more than the sum of their individual effects. The organizational practices identified here are expected to be more effective if they are adopted in conjunction with the others rather than being adopted in isolation. Consistency among practices is beneficial in the sense that each one increases the effectiveness and sustainability of the others. Indeed, if some of your organizational practices work to undermine relationships, the careful investments you have made in other organizational practices may be effectively wasted or at least seriously diluted. The following sections consider the potential consequences of only partially adopting the ten practices that were described in Part 2. Lead with Credibility and Caring Perhaps you have put into place all the other organizational practices, but you have a top management team that does not have a credible, caring relationship with frontline employees. Like American, Continental, and United Airlines at various points in their history, many organizations have suffered years of mistrust between management and frontline employees. For these organizations, it is no small task to reverse this mistrust and restart the relationship from scratch. However, without credible, caring top leadership, the other organizational practices are in jeopardy. 
The behavior of top leadership serves as a model for the rest of the organization, helping to illustrate and animate the principles that underlie the other organizational practices that you have put into place. The credible leadership of Herb Kelleher and Colleen Barrett has created credibility throughout the organization and serves as a foundation for other leaders throughout the company, including the frontline supervisors. It makes our jobs so much easier, said a mid-level manager at Southwest Airlines. When Herb or Colleen says something is bad, you know it's bad. Without credibility on the part of top leadership, there would be no chance of a long-lasting partnership with employee unions or with external suppliers. In addition, the caring leadership of Herb Kelleher and Colleen Barrett has helped to create the basis for strong family-like ties within Southwest and a concern for supporting the family relationships of employees at home. It is clear that top leadership is not the be-all and end-all to strong organizational performance, but that top leadership plays a critical role in either supporting or undermining the effects of the other organizational practices. Invest in frontline leadership. You might adopt the overall system of practices, but decide to employ a relatively small number of supervisors per frontline employees, perhaps to save on staffing expense. As we saw, frontline employees would likely receive less coaching and feedback on their work and would look instead to quantitative performance measures to figure out how they were doing. These measures tend to be less effective at capturing things like helping across functional boundaries and more effective at capturing performance of a specific job. The second outcome of reduced supervision is that frontline employees tend to have a less personal relationship with management. There are fewer opportunities to hear a management perspective, and thus more opportunities for the gulf to widen between management and non-management employees. As a result, it is a much bigger job for the organization's top leadership to reach the frontline employee, with less help from frontline leadership. Similarly, a reduced supervisory staff may undermine your efforts to make unions into partners rather than adversaries. With reduced supervisory staff, there is less opportunity for day-to-day -day conversations through which to work out a set of shared objectives between management and non-management employees. As a result, the negotiating table becomes less a place to formalize an ongoing conversation and more a place for strangers with competing objectives to meet warily. Hire and train for relational competence. Consider, for example, what happens if you adopt all of the organizational practices outlined in Part 2, except that contrary to Southwest's approach, you continue to hire and train employees without regard for their relational competence. Say you continue to hire and train your pilots or engineers or physicians to exhibit a command personality with their fellow employees. Your new performance measurement system that holds all employees involved in a particular work process jointly accountable for outcomes will be seriously undermined. Other employees participating in the work process will not feel it is fair to be held responsible for outcomes over which they had little say. This is exactly what happened when the pilots at American Airlines became members of departure teams, in which they were held jointly accountable with the gate agents for decisions about whether and how long to hold a flight. 
Because Americans' pilots were still hired and trained to exhibit a command personality, they had no concept that the gate agents might have a valuable perspective to contribute to the decision. A former chief pilot and vice president of flight operations at American Airlines pointed out just before the program was terminated, there are real problems with the way that program is working right now. The pilot thinks he's in total control and that the ground workers don't know as much. The gate agents are getting around the pilots by cheating, saying they already got approval from the pilots when they didn't. Similarly, if employees continue to be hired and trained without regard for relational competence, any efforts to use conflicts as an opportunity for learning, bringing them out into the open rather than submerging them, are likely to backfire. New procedures for conflict resolution are not likely to succeed if relational competence is not fostered in the hiring and training processes. Finally, what happens if you develop flexible job descriptions, asking employees to do whatever needs to be done to make the operation a success, and yet those employees continue to be hired and trained without regard to relational competence? Those flexible job descriptions may backfire because employees will not be equipped to deal with the fuzzy boundaries between their own job and the jobs of their colleagues. At the very least, the flexible job descriptions will be rendered relatively useless as employees choose to remain within the safe territory of their own jobs. Use conflicts to build relationships. Let us consider another scenario. Say you adopt all of the organizational practices outlined in Part 2, except you downplay the importance of conflicts among employees. Rather than using conflicts as an opportunity for learning, you take the more common approach of brushing them under the table, hoping the parties will forget their problems or work them out on their own. This would be a serious mistake. Several of your other practices create the potential for conflict, and you need to be ready to address those conflicts proactively when they arise. For example, Flexible job descriptions are great in terms of expanding the scope of responsibility, but they do create the potential for conflicts that would not otherwise arise. The expectation that you will do your own job plus anything else that might be necessary to help the operation succeed blurs the boundaries between jobs and creates more areas that are open to interpretation and thus conflict. Likewise, Broad performance measures that hold people jointly responsible for outcomes can create conflict. If you are responsible only for your own task, there is less opportunity for conflict. If instead you are responsible for the outcome of the overall work process, along with the others who are engaged in that work process, there is less clarity about whose fault it is when something does go wrong. Proactive conflict resolution can make the difference between letting these conflicts fester or using them as an opportunity for learning about the overall process and the role that each party plays in it. Bridge the Work-Family Divide This organizational practice in particular looks like one that is nice to have, but not essential to the overall effectiveness of the other practices. And yet it is. All of the practices outlined in Part 2 are designed to build strong working relationships that support high performance. To be truly engaged in strong working relationships, a person must be able to bring his or her real self to the workplace. 
Southwest's efforts to make the workplace feel like a family helps to cement those working relationships at a deep level of commitment by creating a strong sense of collective identity at work. The hazard of these family-like relationships at work, as Southwest's managers are well aware, is that employees will neglect their own family relationships, creating dysfunctional home lives that will eventually undermine employee well-being and performance. Accordingly, Southwest seeks to support and strengthen the family ties of their employees through flex time policies and emergency funds to help employees in need. One young employee told me about confiding a family problem to his supervisor and being immediately excused to deal with it along with some cash to address the emergency. By supporting the family and non-work commitments of its employees and by making the workplace itself feel like a family where one can be one's true self, Southwest gains the loyalty and commitment of its employee at a deep level, thus providing a foundation for all its other practices. Create boundary spanners. Say you put into place the other relationship-intensive practices of Southwest Airlines, but then decide to rely on a technology interface rather than a human interface for coordinating your work processes. As we saw, some work processes have very distinct functional boundaries and therefore benefit greatly from using a human boundary spanner to coordinate them. A boundary spanner, like the operations agent at Southwest, plays an informational role, helping to collect and transmit information from one function to the other, including subtle contextual information that is not easily codified and transmitted through a technology interface. But Southwest's boundary spanner also plays a social role, helping to build shared goals and a shared understanding of the work process so that each party is more likely to take the right actions when there is a need to adapt quickly to changing circumstances. When information technology is used to replace the role of the boundary spanner, some of these shared understandings will start to break down over time. Supervisors are likely to fill in the breach, spending their time coordinating across functional boundaries, thereby detracting from their role in providing coaching and feedback to frontline employees. With less active coaching and feedback from frontline supervisors, there is additional pressure on the performance measurement system to provide feedback to employees. As a result, there may be an increased emphasis on doing what can be readily measured, typically activities within the bounds of a given functional area, neglecting the critical activities at the boundaries. Measure performance broadly. Instead of using Southwest's approach toward measuring performance, you could decide to take the traditional approach to performance measurement, measuring performance by the numbers, and assigning outcomes to individual departments. However, cross-functional performance measurement is central to Southwest's system of organizational practices. Without it, there is no need for flexible work rules and far less need to hire and train people for relational competence. These other organizational practices would become unnecessary, wasted investments. In addition, when performance measures are functionally specific, the coaching and feedback role of frontline supervisors becomes far less critical. The coaching and feedback role of supervisors is particularly useful for helping employees understand how their own actions affect overall process outcomes. When one's performance is measured only in terms of one's own functionally specific tasks, feedback is more straightforward 
and supervisors have less value to add to the process. This approach was exemplified by American Airlines, where control of the operation was achieved through functionally specific performance measures rather than through supervisory coaching and feedback. Keep jobs flexible at the boundaries. If you put into place all the other relationship-intensive practices but do not have flexible work rules, what harm could that possibly do? Quite a bit, potentially. If all other practices in the organization are geared toward minimizing functional divisions, and yet there are rules in place to discourage or actively prevent employees from performing the work of others, the message to employees is confusing and frustrating. Why hire and train for relational competence if one's ability to help others in a pinch is highly restricted? This was the reasoning at American Airlines, where a supervisor said, the work groups are so well-defined that they are not allowed to help out, so we don't look for that when we hire. It would cause problems. Similarly, why create a performance measurement system designed to encourage helping out across functional boundaries when job descriptions prevent it? As we saw, rigid job descriptions tend to reinforce beliefs that certain work is the territory of certain people and that others are not entitled to do it, even in circumstances where it would clearly make sense for the sake of operational performance. This territoriality undermines the principle that is communicated by your other organizational practices, making them a wasted investment at best, or worse, creating cynicism as to the organization's true principles. Make unions your partners, not adversaries. What if you have invested carefully in building the other organizational practices and yet have developed an adversarial relationship with one or more of your employee unions? What harm could this do? Positive labor management relations have the potential to further cement the loyalty of employees to the company. The loyalty that employees feel toward their company is magnified when the union they belong to is engaged in a mutually supportive partnership with the company. An adversarial relationship, by contrast, forces employees to choose between loyalty to their union and loyalty to their company, resulting in divided loyalties within and among employees. Second, the importance of labor management partnership for achieving flexible job descriptions cannot be underestimated. In any unionized setting, job descriptions are subject to contractual negotiations, one of the surest outcomes of adversarial labor management relations is an attempt to negotiate rigid job descriptions to protect union members from being taken advantage of by unscrupulous managers. In addition, an adversarial relationship can result in job actions taken by one work group against the company, putting stress on the other work groups, and thus undermining the quality of relationships among frontline employees. Build relationships with your suppliers. Finally, what result can you expect if you have developed all of the practices to support strong relationships within your organization, but you still have arm's-length relationships with some of your most important suppliers? At the very least, there is a missed opportunity. You are missing the chance to leverage your internal relational capabilities to create strong relationships with external parties and thereby missing out on the operational benefits that can result from external partnerships. At worst, there is the same problem that can occur with any inconsistent organizational practice. 
The message that employees receive is not clear, which can lead to confusion or cynicism about the organization's true principles, and thus to an erosion of those principles. Simply put, if we treat the airports, air traffic control, and the aircraft manufacturers with disrespect, jockeying for the most favorable position for ourselves without regard for their interests, then that same us-them approach may come to infect our internal relationships as well. Summing up. Southwest's success is not due to one particular organizational practice or another, but rather to the overwhelming consistency among them. As we have seen, each organizational practice tends to reinforce the others, or, if designed in a way that is inconsistent with relational principles, tends to undermine the others. The idea that high performance depends on bundles of organizational practices rather than individual practices is a powerful one that extends to other industry settings. Evidence from the auto industry, the apparel industry, the steel industry, and the telecommunications industry shows that bundles of practices can have powerful, positive effects on performance. This book is part of a series of studies that shows how bundles of mutually reinforcing organizational practices can launch organizations onto a high-performance trajectory. In their seminal work on organization design, Paul Lawrence and Jay Lorsch made perhaps the earliest case for the benefits of consistency. A new form of consistency can be achieved. Each of the discrete practices can be consistent with the other practices, so that all will reinforce the desired task performance. Since then, from the work of Jay Galbraith to the work of David Nadler and Mike Tushman, alignment among organizational practices has been considered to be integral to high performance. Economists have shown that the performance advantage from consistent organizational practices is due to complementarities among them. Practices are complementary if adopting one increases the benefits of having the other, or if not adopting one decreases the benefits of having the other. Because of the psychological dynamics of reinforcement, consistency is likely to be particularly important for organizational practices that are designed to influence employee attitudes and behaviors. When an organization sends mixed signals, on one hand we select and train employees for relational competence, but on the other hand, performance measurement is functionally based, the result is confusion and cynicism about the organization's true principles, undermining investments in both practices. Most U.S. firms have implemented some form of innovative work system or human resource practices over the past decade, and many of them are designed to strengthen relationships between management and frontline employees or among frontline employees themselves. However, the question is whether these innovations are sufficiently coherent and consistent to transform relationships, or whether they are sporadic, separate efforts that leave key relationships fundamentally untransformed. As we have seen here with Southwest, effective organizations typically have a configuration of mutually consistent practices, rather than a single key practice that makes them effective while imitating organizations tend to adopt only some of these practices. Organizational experts have recognized the difficulties of transferring best practice from one organization to another, but have concluded that successful learning from another organization 
requires managers to adopt the whole system of mutually consistent practices in order to achieve desired performance outcomes. To learn successfully from Southwest, I have argued, the key is to adopt organizational practices that support relationships over the long term between managers and frontline employees, among frontline employees, and with external parties, and to be rigorous about seeking consistency among these practices. One bad apple, or inconsistent practice, really can spoil the whole bunch. Chapter 15 Implementing High-Performance Relationships in Your Organization We have seen how relationships based on shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect have contributed to Southwest Airlines' extraordinary performance. Part 1 We have examined 10 organizational practices that Southwest uses to build relationships between managers and frontline employees, among frontline employees, with unions, and with suppliers, Part 2. We have gained insight into how these organizational practices work together. Part 3. This final chapter offers guidance for implementing high-performance relationships in your organization. It describes key steps for introducing these 10 supporting organizational practices to your organization or department, and some common obstacles you will need to overcome to be successful. One obvious challenge arises from the fact that these practices are complementary. They work together rather than in isolation. Therefore, investments in these practices will not be fully realized until they are all in place. You will need to reevaluate current practices in terms of whether they help to support or undermine relationships based on shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. If your organization is a typical one, with little systematic consideration of how organizational practices either support or undermine relationships, you may need to change on multiple fronts simultaneously. We will consider each of the ten practices one by one, then end with the challenge of sustaining them over time. Lead with credibility and caring. One critical step is for leaders in your organization, including yourself, to begin building credibility with employees throughout the organization. Credibility is a valuable resource that cannot be achieved overnight, but rather must be developed over time. As we saw in the case of Southwest, Herb Kelleher, Chairman and Founder, and Colleen Barrett, President and Chief Operating Officer, achieved high levels of credibility through repeated, consistent episodes of Telling It Straight, whether the news was good or bad. If it's bad, they'll tell you, said one employee. Credibility cannot be built overnight. It is the classic problem of the boy who cried wolf. A leader who decides to deliver bad news to the organization, but who does not have a reputation for credibility, runs the risk that his employees will believe he is trying once again to trick them to win an advantage. For example, Former American CEO Bob Crandall's so-called transition plan, a thinly-veiled threat to take American out of the airline business and into information systems and management services if employees did not cooperate, met with employee disbelief. His credibility with his board and with Wall Street was coming into question at the same time, due largely to his inability to establish credibility with frontline employees. To develop credibility, 
one must simply tell it straight for long enough that people come to trust what you say. However, credibility is not sufficient. It must also be clear to your employees that their top leadership cares deeply about their well-being. This is the element of compassion that is so apparent in Southwest's leadership, not only in what they say, but what they do, epitomized by the no-layoff record they have worked to maintain throughout the 32 years since the organization's founding. Americans' Bob Crandall, by contrast, not only lacked credibility when he rolled out the transition plan, he also suggested by this move that he did not care about the future well-being of his employees. He was not deeply committed to making the company in which the employees still took a great deal of pride and on which they depended for their livelihood a success. By contrast, Southwest employees repeatedly emphasized to outsiders that if you have a problem, Herb cares. The same is also said of Colleen Barrett, who is legendary for taking personal action to help employees solve personal problems, and is said by employees to be up there with Jesus Christ. To develop caring is just as critical as developing credibility, but it is less straightforward. How does one become a compassionate leader? You must care deeply for the well-being of your employees and find a way to demonstrate that caring crossing boundaries of power and hierarchy to do so. It is difficult to show compassion every day when there are no traumatic events to help crystallize and pull everyone together. But one clear message from Southwest's employees is the everydayness of the caring that is demonstrated by their leaders. The first step is to become a caring person. The second step is to find ways to communicate this caring on an everyday basis as well as in times of extreme crisis. Ultimately, this may require a new, expanded set of criteria for leader selection in your organization. Invest in frontline leadership. Leadership does not happen only at the top levels of the organization. Rather, it is a distributed process that occurs throughout the organization, with a particularly critical leadership role to be played by frontline supervisors who can work side-by-side -side with frontline employees, providing them with meaningful coaching and feedback. As Southwest leaders have said, next to Herb, our frontline supervisors are our most important leaders. The critical ingredients in building frontline leadership, as we saw at Southwest, are generous staffing levels for frontline supervisors and training that helps them to engage in active coaching and feedback, rather than simply monitoring for non-compliance. Both of these ingredients require investment in additional resources, particularly increasing supervisory staffing levels. High staffing levels for supervisors are a direct charge against the bottom line to be paid off over time through improved operational performance. However, it will make even more sense economically if job descriptions are flexible enough to allow supervisors to step in and help with the work of frontline employees as needed. Working side-by-side -side with frontline employees gives supervisors additional credibility for engaging in coaching and feedback, since it gives them an intimate, first-hand understanding of the work in which employees are engaged. In addition, daily interactions between supervisors and frontline employees help to support the relationships between top leadership and frontline employees that are so difficult to maintain as an organization grows. Besides the investment required for increasing supervisory staffing, 
The other major obstacle you will face is the lingering belief among many of your colleagues that supervision is antithetical to teamwork. Managers who were trained in the 1970s and 1980s have come to believe that reducing supervisory staff is a path to employee empowerment. You will have to make the case that supervision reconceived as coaching and feedback helps to build teamwork rather than undermine it. Hire and train for relational competence. Hiring is one of the most critical things an organization can do to shape its performance, particularly in service organizations in which people are the primary input to production. The tendency to hire and train for functional expertise rather than for relational competence is very common, particularly for jobs that require high levels of functional expertise. Yet people in these jobs require equally high levels of relational competence to contribute their full value to the organization. Otherwise, we observe the all-too-common scenario of experts whose expertise serves as a barrier rather than a resource to the organization. Southwest's focus on relational skills in the hiring process is legendary. Pilots throughout the industry tell the story of the pilot who was rude to the administrative assistant during the course of his interview process at Southwest. He didn't get the job, the story concludes. Such a shift in hiring practices should be fairly easy to achieve in your own organization, one would think. It is not a matter of discounting the traditional markers of skill when they are indeed relevant to what you are trying as an organization to achieve. Instead, it is a matter of identifying selection tools that will uncover the relational competencies that enable an employee to integrate his or her expertise into the work process to achieve the outcomes that the organization and its customers care about. There are three obstacles to hiring for relational competence, however. First, these new hiring criteria may threaten deeply held beliefs about the overriding importance of individual expertise particularly in occupations such as medicine, engineering, or the law. The mystique of individual excellence is not easily overridden, even when research demonstrates the importance of relational competence. Taking care not to downgrade the importance of expertise, but rather to portray relational competence as necessary to realize the potential contributions of individual experts can help to avoid unnecessary conflicts. Second, it is not easy to identify soft skills like relational competence in the hiring process. Human resource departments may not feel comfortable screening for skills that are not readily amenable to objective measurement. One method used at Southwest, and more recently at JetBlue, for identifying these softer attributes is target selection, also known in some settings as behavioral interviewing. In target selection, a candidate is asked to recall an incident from a previous work experience in which he or she worked with others to solve a problem, for example. After walking through the incident, the candidate is then asked in-depth questions about the incident. What happened next? How did others react? What was the outcome of the incident? Based on the candidate's account of the incident, multiple interviewers rate the candidate on the target attribute. Candidates who are unanimously rated highly by multiple interviewers on that target attribute then move forward in the hiring process. So although it is challenging to identify soft skills like relational competence, it can be done. The additional benefit of target selection 
is that candidates become very aware of the qualities that are valued by the organization, and they have had to provide evidence that they too have these special qualities. The hiring process thus creates a bond between the organization and the newly hired employee around the qualities that the organization values most highly. The final obstacle to hiring for relational competence is that it is not a quick fix, and it almost certainly cannot work by itself. It is an investment that can take a long time to pay off, particularly in a time of slow organizational growth when new hires are few and far between. New people can quickly become jaded by the behaviors and attitudes of more senior employees who were selected under a different set of criteria. It is therefore particularly important that this practice not be attempted in isolation from the others. Use conflicts to build relationships. Conflicts are typically thought of as negative events to be avoided in the name of organizational harmony. However, we saw a different, more proactive approach to conflict at Southwest Airlines, stemming from the view that conflicts are normal, expected events, particularly given the time pressure and interdependence of the flight departure process. We saw that conflicts can be lifted up, examined, and used as a learning experience that will ultimately strengthen relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect between the conflicting parties and beyond given the ripple effect of such learning. The more typical organizational approach to conflicts is to submerge them and hope that they go away. This approach is understandable given the potentially destructive nature of conflict. How can your organization develop a proactive approach to conflict resolution and begin to treat conflicts as opportunities for learning? One key ingredient is to make conflict resolution an explicit part of the managerial role and to talk about and praise occasions when conflicts were resolved in a way that led to stronger relationships among the conflicting parties. Second, organizations that seek to learn from conflict need to develop and inculcate the view that conflicts are not the basis for disciplinary action, but the inability to learn from a conflict could very well be. As Southwest's managers attested, when the attempt to bring the parties in a conflict together fails to result in learning by either party, it is often taken as a sign that neither belongs at Southwest. Finally, to make this proactive learning approach to conflict truly pay off, the organization needs to promulgate the ripple effect, whereby the story gets told and retold throughout the organization about how the flight attendant and the gate agent were brought together to work out a conflict, and came away with a whole new appreciation of the challenges involved in the other's role. This ripple effect ensures that the learning achieved from the individual incident is leveraged throughout the organization, so that the same conflict need not occur repeatedly for all to learn its lessons. Bridge the Work-Family Divide One model for strong working relationships comes from the family, where people can ideally be themselves and connect with each other based on their true selves. Southwest employees often refer to family ties in describing their interactions with each other, she is like a sister to me, and refer to their work responsibilities as though they are on the same level as their family responsibilities. I have a responsibility for a family, a house, and for this company. Giving work ties the intensity of family ties 
can help to bring an employee's best energies into the service of the organization. How can your organization create the strength of family-like ties at work? There are several key ingredients. The first is encouraging people to bring their true selves when they come to work at your organization. Allowing them to interject their own personalities into the work process, for example, personalizing their workspaces and interacting with customers in a way that reflects their own personalities. Second, related to the first, is to regularly recognize your employees' personal tragedies and triumphs, extending help and compassion to them in times of trouble, and celebrating the everyday occurrences in their lives. When people feel they must only bring part of themselves to the organization and leave the rest at home, their work identities are less holistic, and their relationships with each other are weaker as a result. Finally, by engaging employees in acts of giving to the community, as in Southwest's Culture Committee, you can forge an organizational identity that builds upon and leverages employees' identities as members of a larger community. One obstacle to creating these family-like ties at work, however, is the concern by employees that family-like ties at work may supplant or weaken ties with their own families, leading to conflicting loyalties that are hard to manage. You can reduce this hazard, as Southwest has done, through practices that consistently support your employees' family commitments, providing help in times of emergency, making flexible schedules available to all employees to accommodate their family's needs, and getting family members involved in your organization's extended family so they don't feel left out. Create Boundary Spanners in your organization, you will likely find boundaries based on differences in goals, knowledge, and status between the functions that must work together smoothly to deliver reliable service for your customers. These boundaries can be bridged through informal ties that may simply emerge in the process of working together or through formal teams that include members from each function. Alternatively, you can create boundary spanners, as we saw at Southwest Airlines people whose job it is to bring together information from multiple functions in a timely way to meet performance objectives. At its most effective, the boundary spanner does more than transfer information among parties who are involved in the same work process. He or she also helps to build relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect among them. How can you create boundary spanners in your organization and what are the likely obstacles that would prevent you from doing so? The design of the boundary spanner role is fairly straightforward. The first step is to identify a work process whose performance is critical for the organization's success and one that requires inputs from multiple functions. The second step is to create a new role, either to be filled by an existing function that already tends to play an integrative role or to create a new job altogether. Finally, you need to staff and support the boundary spanner role based on the understanding that the job involves more than the transfer and integration of information. It involves building connections among all parties involved in the work process. This means staffing the role adequately to create a workload small enough to support the relational work of an effective boundary spanner. This also means selecting employees into the job who have the ability and desire to do more than information processing. They understand and are well suited to carry out the relational work of a boundary spanner as well, 
bringing people together around a shared understanding of the work process and the important role that each party plays in it. There are likely to be obstacles to creating this boundary-spanning role. If the job does not already exist in some form, there is likely to be resistance on the part of existing personnel to the creation of a new job that appears to overlap with and perhaps encroach upon their own jobs. The job needs to be well respected in the organization to be carried out effectively, creating the additional potential for status conflict with existing employees. If the job already exists in some form and simply needs to be extended to play a more relational role, the obstacles will be somewhat different. People who are accustomed to playing a hands-off information processing role, often carried out primarily through an information systems interface, may resist the redefinition of their job to include a less well-understood relational component. They may also feel ill-equipped to carry out the more intensive interaction, much of it face-to-face, -face, involved in building relationships of shared understanding around the work process. They have likely been hired and trained for their current job in a way that does not include the broader skill requirements of an effective boundary spanner. Finally, the investment required to staff this role adequately will serve as an additional obstacle. When managers in other airlines heard about Southwest's staffing levels for the operations agent position, they often expressed disbelief, saying, What a waste! Or, That is so inefficient! And yet the evidence suggests that there are performance payoffs to investing in this key role. Furthermore, there is no reason to believe that this particular investment will take a long time to pay off. Once boundary spanners have been hired, trained, and adequately staffed to perform their expanded role, they should be able to add value fairly quickly. A core underlying objection to the boundary spanner role is the belief that what really matters is transmitting the information itself and we can solve that problem with IT. But we know from years of research that much critical information cannot be transmitted effectively through information technology alone and that strong ties among participants are required to use and share that information effectively. Boundary spanners help to forge those ties. Measure performance broadly. The traditional approach to performance measurement is to break down performance into its discrete components or behaviors consistent with functional departmental structures. The problem is that an organization's most critical work processes tend to span multiple functional or departmental boundaries, and the outcomes of those work processes depend not on any one function, but on the actions that are taken by people in each of those functions. When performance measures try to separate out the contributions of individual functions, rather than focusing on overall outcomes, the result can be a great deal of unproductive finger-pointing, when each function that is blamed can point to an action or inaction by another function that contributed to the outcome. As we saw, Southwest attempts to short-circuit the cycle of blaming by instituting a team delay, allowing multiple functional groups to take joint responsibility for a delay rather than assigning it to one and only one department. The idea was to focus on the problem itself and to create more openness around understanding its sources by taking away the measurement system that had focused employee attention on blaming and blame avoidance. How can your organization change its performance measurement system to end the cycle of blaming, and what are the likely obstacles to doing so? 
It is fairly straightforward to design a performance measurement system that focuses on process outcomes rather than functional outcomes. One simply measures on-time performance for the whole station rather than measuring on-time performance separately for the flight attendants, for the pilots, for the baggage handlers, for the mechanics, for the gate agents, and so on. The obstacles, of course, are tremendous. The first obstacle is the concern that much valuable information will be lost in the move toward broader performance measures. How will we be able to identify and fix the problem if we don't know which department was at fault? This objection assumes, however, that the functionally based performance measurements currently in place yield accurate information about the cause of a problem. A long-held tenet of quality improvement, first stated by W. Edwards Deming, is that functionally-based performance measures lead to information hiding rather than information sharing. Paradoxically, using functional performance measures to learn about the root cause of problems often leads to less useful information rather than more. Measures that focus on overall process performance rather than functional accountability take the focus off individuals and place it on the process creating the safety to share information and learn from mistakes. The second major obstacle is related to the first, but it is found at a deeper level. It is the belief that detailed performance measures are the only way that control can be achieved. The measurement system at American Airlines was hard to relinquish because of this belief, deeply held by former CEO Bob Crandall and promulgated throughout the company. If you do not fundamentally trust your people, nor do they trust you, it is particularly hard to imagine how your organization can be run successfully without the element of fear and oversight of a detailed performance measurement system. In some organizations, it can be risky even to suggest such a change. The ruin of a promising young executive's career at American hinged on her questioning of the system of performance measurement and its suitability for a work process that required teamwork. There is some truth to each of these objections. Indeed, performance measures that focus on overall process performance rather than individual or departmental failure cannot work by themselves. In isolation from other relationship-building organizational practices, broad team-based performance measures may indeed create the outcomes their detractors claim, a lack of detailed information for quality improvement, and a refusal of anyone to take responsibility for problems. This practice should not be attempted in isolation. Keep jobs flexible at the boundaries. There are good reasons why organizations tend to draw boundaries around jobs, delineating clear areas of responsibility for particular functional groups. Such boundaries help to increase role clarity, focus employee attention on their particular contribution to a broader work process, and avoid the employee burnout that can result from trying to accomplish too many ill-defined objectives. And yet the flip side of this practice is the all-too-common and often annoying statement, it's not my job. This attitude can slow down a work process, preventing employees from switching roles even when doing so would prevent an unnecessary delay. More important, clear job boundaries can produce employees who know their own jobs very well, but who do not have a clue how their jobs relate to those of others even others who are intimately involved in the same work process. These employees cannot readily visualize how their jobs relate to those of others, cannot readily integrate their work with others, 
and cannot readily solve problems or adapt to unexpected contingencies. Southwest's solution is to have very clearly defined jobs, but to also make clear in each job description that part of the job is to do whatever is necessary to make the operation successful. This simple statement and its constant reinforcement by the other organizational practices transforms an ordinary job into a job with broad responsibilities. Flexible job descriptions ask employees to focus on doing their own specific job very well, while at the same time asking them to remain open to the larger picture of what the organization is trying to accomplish. They open employees up to the possibility of jumping in to help others as needed to achieve overall performance objectives. Flexible job descriptions also help to reduce status barriers between jobs, as when baggage handlers, called ramp rats at other airlines, come upstairs from the ramp to help check in customers, or when pilots help to load bags or clean the cabin between flights, derided as pillow fluffing, a woman's job at other airlines. In short, flexible job descriptions help to foster relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect between functions that traditionally have had little in common. For organizations that already have clearly specified job descriptions for all employees, it seems quite straightforward to add Southwest's whatever-else-is-needed clause to each job description. In reality, the potential obstacles are tremendous. First, if unions are present, job descriptions are subject to negotiation and must be changed through negotiation. Southwest has been a highly unionized company since its origin, demonstrating that flexible job descriptions are indeed possible under these circumstances. Still, Southwest managers emphasize that job flexibility is not simply a management choice, but rather the repeated outcome of negotiation. In unionized workplaces, achieving flexible job descriptions, therefore, depends on the quality of the labor-management relationship. Even in non-union settings, employees can have considerable leverage, either through formal channels or simply due to the ample opportunities that exist for effective informal resistance. Employees must trust that these broader job descriptions will not be used to take advantage of them, creating responsibilities that they simply cannot meet. More fundamentally, employees must come to terms with a potential weakening of their occupational identities, which have often served as a tremendous source of pride. Pilots who are expected to help load bags or come into the cabin between flights to clean newspapers from the aisle must place their organizational identity above their occupational identity in order to be comfortable with the expanded job description. I am a pilot must be superseded by this is my company. Achieving flexible job descriptions is therefore dependent on other organizational practices discussed in this book, including selection of employees for relational competence, using conflict resolution as an opportunity to build relationships, and especially measuring performance of the overall process rather than that of individual functions. Make unions your partners, not adversaries. In any organization in which employees are represented by unions, there is an additional party that must be considered in achieving flexible job descriptions or in building high-performance relationships more generally, the unions themselves. Southwest's history suggests that unions can serve as partners 
rather than as adversaries, and that managers can influence whether the relationship will be one of partnership or adversarialism. How can you create effective partnerships with the unions that represent your employees, and what are the likely obstacles to doing so? The first key step is to accept unions as the legitimate representatives of your employees and welcome them as partners in your organization. This step seems incredibly obvious and straightforward, but in reality, the traditional anti-union bias in U.S. culture presents a major obstacle. There is no point moving further if you cannot take this first key step, since the relationship is bound to be adversarial, implicitly if not explicitly, if you do not accept unions as the legitimate representatives of your employees. When your employees are in the process of choosing a union to represent them, it is particularly important to stand back and take the position that, as Southwest COO and President Colleen Barrett put it, we really want them to have whoever they want. Taking this position demonstrates trust in your employees and their judgment and sets the stage for a potentially positive relationship with the union they ultimately choose to represent their interests. The other obstacle to partnering with unions is a fear that, legitimate or not, a union will vie for your employees' loyalty, making them less concerned with the company's well-being and less likely to identify strongly with it. If you take the position that you trust your employees' judgment and do not see the union as an adversary, you increase the chances that your employees will keep their union representatives in line and prevent them from taking positions that are destructive to the company. The union activists at Southwest who were interviewed for this book expressed intense loyalty and ownership of the company and explained how they got rid of one union because it was trying to hurt the company. Trying to hurt the company was considered by Southwest employees to be unacceptable union behavior. We belong to this company, one union activist explained. Another union activist explained, We made this company and we are not going to let you ruin it. Of course, this intense loyalty is not only a reward for trusting your employees to make their own decisions regarding union representation. It is also the product of other practices that create strong relationships between employees and their managers, particularly leading with credibility and caring and fostering frontline leadership. The final obstacle to creating partnerships with the unions that represent your employees is the deeply held belief that unionization signifies management failure. As one of JetBlue's leaders said, if we need unions, then boy have we failed. Nobody likes to fail. And if unions signify failure, they will be avoided with intensity and passion, particularly by the high achievers who tend to seek positions of managerial responsibility. This belief is partly a function of our business culture, which places individual striving above the collective good and which assumes the stockholder to be the only stakeholder to whom managers can legitimately respond. If other stakeholders are seen as a constraint on performing one's legitimate managerial function, they will be resisted at all costs. This obstacle to building high-performance relationships can be ascribed in part to the training that managers receive in traditional MBA programs, suggesting the need to re-examine our MBA programs for the biases they promulgate. Southwest's experience suggests that it is not union representation itself, but the nature of the labor-management relationship which determines performance. 
The labor-management relationship in turn is heavily influenced by managers' respect for employee choices regarding union representation and by their willingness to welcome unions as their partners. Build relationships with your suppliers. The traditional approach to supplier relations is to keep suppliers in line by avoiding reliance on any one of them, pitting them against each other to achieve the upper hand in bargaining. While this approach gives management a sense of security and power over its suppliers, other advantages are lost. Southwest gains multiple advantages from its long-term supplier relationships, including the ability to turn to those suppliers to solve problems jointly, to respond quickly to opportunities, and to come up with ideas that would not have occurred to either party in isolation. How might your company build supportive long-term relationships with your suppliers, and what are the potential obstacles to doing so? The how-to is not difficult. Once you have developed strong relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect within your organization, it is simply a matter of choosing carefully the suppliers who are critical to your success and making them part of that web of relationships, treating them as you would any colleague with whom you are mutually dependent. However, this step suggests the first potential obstacle. If you don't have strong relationships internally, it is much harder to extend them to encompass your key suppliers. For one thing, the skills and experience for doing so are not likely to be widespread throughout your organization. In addition, representatives of your organization will not be able to speak easily for the organization without going through a huge bureaucracy, thus inhibiting their ability to partner freely with external suppliers. Once you do have a strong, well-functioning set of internal relationships, there is a second key obstacle, a suspicion of outsiders and an assumption that their interests are somehow in conflict with those of your own organization. Indeed, these feelings of us versus them can be even more intense in organizations that have developed strong internal relationships and can serve to block your efforts to make suppliers part of the team. One way to overcome this obstacle with your colleagues is to be very selective about which suppliers really should become part of the team. Only those on whom your organization is highly dependent for its success need to be cultivated as part of the team, and even when the intent is to forge a long-term relationship, it is best to keep in mind what are the circumstances under which your organization would exit from this relationship. Once these obstacles are overcome, your organization can enjoy the fruits of collaborating with external suppliers. Maintain financial reserves. The relationship-building practices described above can be put into place in most, if not all, organizations. But how does one maintain a commitment to something as intangible as relationships in times of crisis, when external stakeholders are demanding attention to the bottom line? Certainly it is times of crisis when the sustainability of relationship-based performance is most at risk. However, times of crisis are also when the value of relationships becomes most apparent. We saw evidence that relationships themselves can serve as a tremendous source of organizational resilience. Organizations with strong relationships of shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect, like Southwest, have a powerful relational reserve that enables them to thrive under pressure. The problem is that crisis 
often forces managers to put short-term survival ahead of long-term performance. This often means layoffs and other actions that undermine or destroy relationships, just when they are most needed for the organization to deal successfully with the crisis at hand. One obvious solution is to maintain financial reserves for this very purpose, to allow the organization to survive in the face of crisis without damaging the relationships that are so critical both for responding to the crisis at hand and for achieving performance over the long term. However, these financial reserves will be hard to maintain. Why should it be so difficult for organizations to maintain financial reserves for the purpose of sustaining relationships in times of crisis? After all, it is known with certainty that crises will come. The obstacles are twofold. First, it is not widely believed that relationships are such a powerful driver of performance that they need to be nurtured and sustained through good times and bad. This book is an effort to make this case. Others have made the same argument in different ways, and more will follow, resulting eventually in a revitalization and renewal of business culture around the critical importance of relationships. The other obstacle is the high-leverage financial strategies that have become the norm in corporate America. There was a concerted effort in the late 1980s to leverage firms highly to make them more vulnerable and more directly accountable to their financial stakeholders, removing the slack that would allow firms to maintain their commitments to other stakeholders in good times and bad. As we saw in the airline industry post-September 11, a strong, highly significant predictor of airline layoffs was the debt-equity ratio of the individual airline prior to September 11. To sustain the practices that support high-performance relationships, it is essential to have financial reserves in place for that purpose. Summing up Far from being a pie-in-the-sky, soft approach to management, this book has shown that attention to relationships is simply good management practice. However, as competitors know, replicating the Southwest model is challenging to say the least. The Southwest Airlines way involves more than pursuing a particular product market strategy. For Southwest's leaders, taking care of business literally means taking care of relationships. They see these relationships, with their employees, among their employees, and with outside parties, as the foundation of competitive advantage, through good times and bad. They see the quality of these relationships not as a success factor, but as the most essential success factor. They believe that to develop the company, they must constantly invest in these relationships. Is this enough to carry Southwest through the challenging realities that lay ahead? This book suggests that the relationships in which Southwest has so carefully invested will provide a powerful impetus for continued success. This is Anna Fields for McGraw-Hill Audio. Thank you for listening. This audiobook is co-published by American Media International and Redwood Audiobooks and is based upon the book entitled The Southwest Airlines Way by Jody Hoffer-Gattel, copyrighted in 2003 in the name of the McGraw-Hill Companies Incorporated, published by arrangement with the McGraw-Hill Companies Incorporated. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.